Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Francis Bennett. Welcome, Francis. Thank you, Rick. Uh, I have a little bio here of Francis. Francis entered the Trappist Abbey of Gethsemane in 1981, and in the 90s subsequently lived at a daughter house of Gethsemane in Monk's Corner in South Carolina. Until recently, he was living in a small urban monastery in Montreal, Quebec. He has been a spiritual seeker during all those years, practicing in the Christian mystical contemplative tradition and working deeply with teachers in both the Vipassana and Zen traditions. In 2010, he experienced a profound perceptual shift in which he realized the ever-present presence of pure awareness, which some would call the presence of God. He has worked in the field of spiritual care in parish communities and with the sick and dying in hospice and hospital settings. He has led retreats, offered spiritual talks, and has accompanied many on their spiritual journey. He graduated from the Pontifical College jo Josephinium with a BA in philosophy and completed a two-year chaplaincy residency with Ohio Health Hospital System. Yeah, that's your bio. <laughs> wow, who is that guy? <laughs> uh, so, how young were you in 1981? 22. Huh. <laughs> yeah, pretty and, young. Yeah, and um, even before that, as a teenager, had you had like yearnings and leanings in this direction? Yeah, very much so. I, I got involved, well, I had sort of spiritual interest and fascination with the spiritual life. As a little kid, I was always asking spiritual questions, hearing things in church, and coming home basically asking my mom about it. And usually she didn't have a lot of answers because I had some pretty strange questions. Mm -hmm. But um, anyway, uh, in, in my teens, early teens, I got involved in a movement that was known as the charismatic renewal in the huh. Catholic Church and in mainline Christianity. It was a movement that was kind of a neo-Pentecostal movement with speaking in tongues and healing and, and lively singing and clapping and so on. And um, I was very intensely involved in that as a teenager and um, was on a quest from right at the beginning for the presence of God, sensing that to live in the presence of God was really the whole reason we were on the planet. And uh, that kind of led me gradually to the idea of becoming a monk. And at a very young age, when I was still in high school, a high school teacher that I really loved, he was an English teacher, uh, Keith Gokenhauer. Hi, Mr. Gokenhauer, if you're watching. <laughs> and he, um, he got me turned on kind of to the writing of Thomas Merton. Mm -hmm. So I was reading this stuff by Thomas Merton. I was very fascinated by it. And uh, I realized that the abbey that he was at in, in Kentucky who we had, had been at. He died in 68 when I was like nine years old. But uh, it was right in Kentucky. It was only four hours away. So I started going down there when I was still in high school. And then gradually, over a few years of going down there and going on retreats, uh, the monks got to know me pretty well, and I got to know them. And uh, the idea of becoming a Trappist seemed like a great thing to do. And a, a, I, I really wanted to somehow give my life completely to the spiritual search and to God ahead of I get a little sorry I'm sorry okay. uh, I, I get a little uh, choked up sometimes but anyway uh, I just wanted to get, dedicate my whole life to that That's great. and uh, that seemed like a way to do that and um, so I did at the age of 22 I entered and uh, the rest is history as they say <laughs> it seems like the Trappist must be a fairly liberal group because you know you're all studying Zen and Vipassana and all this stuff and uh, nobody yeah. se nobody seemed to have a problem with it no actually um, 
the whole movement, it's very interesting. You might know something about this because you were in the TM movement uh, in the 70s and stuff. And the, right now, uh, I don't know if you're aware of it, but in the Christian contemplative tradition, there's a whole movement uh, around the, uh, centered around the practice of centering prayer. All right. Who was the guy that started that? Well, Thomas Keating, Basil Pennington. That's right. Yeah. So and they all learned TM in the 70s, early 70s. They learned 70s. TM at Spencer, Massachusetts. Yeah. Uh-huh. And they kind of adapted that and also from our own tradition, from the cloud of unknowing, from the early Desert Fathers, they, who used also kind of mantra-type meditative techniques, um, they came up with this whole new approach to Christian contemplative practice, utilizing a lot of the meditational techniques that you find in TM and classical uh, Advaita Vedanta meditations. And, you know, really all the major spiritual traditions have very much the same sort of technology mm-hmm. of meditation. And in Christianity, I think in the 60s and 70s, there were a lot of people uh, turning toward the East, you know, going to India, working with Zen masters. And in and, and the United States, I think, since the turn of the century, really, as far as I can see, uh, was kind of inundated with Eastern spiritual teachers of all stripes, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I think there was a lot of concern in the church that, you know, we had our own contemplative tradition, and yet these people were all turning away from the church and turning to the Eastern practices. And I think it was an attempt to kind of say to them, you know, that's great, the Eastern practices have something to offer, but we also have our own approach to this, and uh, you could profit from that. And so the whole centering movement, uh, centering prayer movement grew up really is a kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe a, a red-haired stepchild, <laughs> I don't know what you'd say, of TM. Yeah. TM really, I think, uh, ushered in a lot of that. So Yeah, I remember when uh, those guys were doing TM, Thomas Keaton and Basil Pennington, they would come and speak at conferences and everything. Did, do you feel like what they, did, what they did was they kind of just modified TM to make it more Christian, or did they actually look back in their own traditions and to see whether something of this nature could be found there and actually found it and then kind of revived it to make it the centering prayer. Yeah, I think what they did was they took the techniques of the, the way TM, I may, maybe the style of teaching, the way of like meditative sort of instruction, mm-hmm. and you sit there, you close your eyes, you have a, you have a prayer word, you repeat it, uh, when your mind starts to wander, you go back to your word. That was sort of, they were using a kind of technology but they really did go back and rediscover the, the, the rich contemplative tradition that you find in Christianity from the early desert fathers who, did, who had little prayer words they would say that were really mantra-like things. And um, especially this one book was very influential by an unknown uh, British English author of the, I believe it was the 16th century, if I'm not mistaken. It could be 14th or 16th, I'm not sure. And it's the cloud of unknowing. Hmm. And in that book, he he's really talking about the same reality. And um, it's basically using a meditational technique to bring you to hopefully uh, an awakening. Uh, and but I think there's definitely connection with TM. There's a you know when you when you see these guys were actually turned on to this concept by their study of TM. Mm-hmm. And, and I think you're right that the Trappist communities in general were very ecumenical, very interfaith, very open to different spiritual traditions because we were a contemplative order. I think many of the leaders of this community, uh, the Trappists worldwide, were very interested in just facilitating for people a living experience of God. And 
these things that from the East were doing that for people. And I think they were really able to hear that. And I think that, that speaks to their, their kind of openness of heart. And I, I, I think it, it, it is a pretty open-minded uh, religious community, I would say. Yeah. Did, they, did they get grief from more conservative aspects of the church, or are they autonomous, autonomous enough that they can just do what they want without... Yeah. They are autonomous enough that they can do what they want, and yes, they got grief. <laughs> oh, um, you know, there were, uh, there's still, there's still people who think centering prayer is uh, the devil or whatever. of the devil and yeah. things like that. And uh, but I think by and large, even there's a lot of Protestant groups now, and there's even evangelical groups. I'm friends with some uh, evangelical ministers of various traditions, and they're getting kind of turned on to the idea of centering prayer Great. and. Um, asking me a lot, uh, you know, I've done a lot of speaking in Protestant, especially evangelical churches and circles about the contemplative Christian tradition, mm. and they're very uh, open. There's a lot of openness in the world, and there's a lot of closeness, and that's true in any religious milieu. It's true in non-dualist yeah. <laughs> circles. It's, it's true in Christian circles. It's true in Buddhist. I was very involved with Theravadan teachers in Vipassana for a long time, and, you know, there's different schools of thought. In any organized religious or spiritual tradition, you get fundamentalists, you get moderates, and you get liberals. And it's just yeah. sort of the, the nature of the game, I think. So. There also always seems to be a tussle between those who are kind of more experientially oriented and those who are more belief-oriented, you know, and, and who, are, who, are more, who put more emphasis on the external trappings and appearances as opposed to the internal yeah. re realization. The, the I think two once don't you necessarily are, they're not on the same wavelength always. <laughs> not always. I mean, hopefully they they feed each other and sort of engage each other in a in a wonderful dance that's very beautiful and creative. You know, liturgy and and ritual and also inner realization of the truth, and they should work hand in hand. But unfortunately, uh, a lot of times people miss the forest for the trees, so to say, mm -hmm. and they get so focused on the forms that they forget the underlying reality that the forms are supposed to be pointing to, you know. Right. So yeah. I think that's a danger in all spiritual... It can, it can sometimes, unfortunately, become more about a need to be right mm. and, and a need to be sure and to have some sense of security. And I, and I don't think that's really what it was meant to point to, but that's what a lot of times religious trappings and, and ritual and form and technique and practices and all that can sometimes become an end in themselves. And they're meant to be a means to an end instead. Yeah, it's an interesting point. You know, I kind of see it as the sort of rigidity of belief and attachment to form for the sake of security, as you say, as being symptomatic of uh, a lack of inner experience. And there, it's, a, it's a compensatory measure, you know, yeah. because the inner, inner experience is deficient. And if the experience is much more rich internally, then you can just kind of relax about all that stuff, you know. Right. It's like either you don't know anything, or everything, you know, is it has its own validity from its own in its own, you know, domain. And but you're kind of more easygoing about it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So anyway, young man, 21, 22 years old. You're kind of hanging out with these guys, and and at what age did you finally join the the monastery? 22. Oh, 22, okay. Yeah, I officially joined in, yeah, at the age of 22. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, and, of course, most 22-year-olds are full of uh, juniper juice and bilge water, as my mother used to say. <laughs> <laughs> I might have been full of that, too, at the same time. <laughs> you know, 
Tending you can ask to, my old novice master what he thinks about that. <laughs> full of energy, tending to bounce off the walls and, and all. But uh, w w did you kind of settle right into it? And uh, I think I'm still sort of full of energy bouncing off walls. <laughs> um, especially since I had this shift, I'm like, my energy's through the roof for some reason. But uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, um, no, I wouldn't say I settled right into it. I was a little, I was a very social guy. I was very involved. I was in a Christian rock band. I was. Oh, cool. uh, What'd you play? I played guitar and oh, sang. I was a drummer, as you probably know. I heard you say that, yeah. <laughs> um, and um, so I was a pretty active guy, you know. I was yeah. involved in sports. I was involved in singing. I was very, very spiritually kind of engaged with this whole charismatic thing. I was one of the leaders of a big, huge youth group. Uh, I was the worship leader, like, of this big youth group. And when I suddenly... Um, in your 20s. Yeah, in, in my yeah. teens, in my teens, wow, from okay. from the time I was about 14 until I entered the Trappist, I was wow. very engaged in all that, and uh, a lot of people were pretty shocked when when I, uh, you know, elected to join a, a contemplative order where people kept silence and shaved their heads. I had long blonde hair way down, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I was very proud of, by the way, and uh, <laughs> so I had to shave all that off, and I keep my mouth shut and. You know, uh, chant psalms and all this stuff, and I, I and, and I think uh, some of my friends maybe thought I was a little nuts, but uh, it was what I wanted to do. It was my passion, really. I, so that's great. Well, we're all a little nuts, but um, and so, but anyway, so you got into it, and uh, so take us through it. Whatever you feel is significant uh, in your sojourn as a as a Trappist and leading up to this awakening you had. Well, you know, it's funny because I know you've talked a lot about this whole dynamic of do people just suddenly awaken or do they practice a long time and sort of gradually awaken or what's you know and a lot of people have different stories about that some people say they can't really point to a date where they just sort of woke up but they just gradually there were little shifts here and there and they seem to kind of incrementally uh, go through this transformation of consciousness and for me it was kind of both really I you know when I was a Trappist very early on, I was still a novice, and this Korean Zen master came to the monastery, and I actually was one of the people that showed him around. He, was, he came over with some students. He had some students in Lexington, and he came over with a group of students, and he was curious to see the monastery. So I happened to be there with another couple monks, and we ended up showing him around, and I was so impressed by this man's spontaneity and just childlike... Um, Full of wonder, you know, over this the most ordinary, normal things, and he was asking all kinds of questions. What's that like? What's it? It's like a six-year-old, you know. <laughs> you know how you are when you're six, and you do want to know about everything. At least I was that way. I was asking my dad about the planets, about grass, about flowers, about bugs, about you know everything. Sure. Well, this this guy was like that. He was just full of wonder and joy, and and just uh, uh, you know joie de vivre, as they say. And he and, and he just. Uh, so impressed me. I thought, there's something just wonderful about this man. He's full of spontaneity and joy. And so he offered to come and give us Zen uh, uh, retreats, you know, little Zen retreats. They usually just lasted a weekend or so. One of them, I think, lasted about a week, but mostly they were short. He'd give us koans to work on. And um, so early on, when I was still in my 20s, um, I I'll never forget the first sort of what they call satori, that I had. I, I had just been on this little retreat with Son Sanim. He was the founder of the, uh, I believe it was the Providence Zen Center 
a Korean Zen master, and um, Satsong, I think. Some, he goes by different names, but we called him Son Sinim. Um, and I began corresponding with him, and whenever he would come, I would take the retreat. And I remember after about maybe my third or fourth retreat, I was walking down this stark cloister at Gethsemane, and all white walls, and the sun was coming in through the windows, and there were little, little dust particles kind of dancing in the sunlight. And I, I just, there was this moment of total presence. I was just totally there. And I was like, wow, <laughs> this, is, this is amazing. And I, and I kind of coupled it with an experience I had very early in life of the presence of God, feeling a sense of awe and wonder and joy and peace and just tranquility of God's presence. And yet all my life it would like come and go and come and go. And I was always searching for that presence. Well, when I had that experience of being in the present moment, I suddenly had this, it was like a mini awakening, realizing, hey, being in the presence, present moment is being in the presence of God. It's, there's no difference. The present moment, presence of God, same thing. And, and I told that to Sun Sinim. He says, yes, yes, it's very true. Presence of God is presence of present moment. We, yes, yes, yes. I've been living in French. So I might start talking, speaking French. I just said, we. No, he didn't say we. He didn't speak French. Right. But anyway, um, uh, that was a little kind of opening. But then it was a little frustrating because, well, like this sense of the present moment, it would just come and go it would come it'd be there for maybe a day or two even after a retreat or something or or listening to him speak even or listening to even one of the monks speak in some very inspiring way we had this uh monk named father matthew keldy who was just absolutely a mystic and he would speak sometimes and i would feel just absolutely permeated with the presence of god it was everywhere and it was just wonderful but then it would fade and so then i would seek for it again and i'd meditate and pray and do all these intense things and then it would come back for a while, and then it would go, and then it would just this like hide and seek. Um, so that went on for a long time. I mean, it went on in my Zen period. I then got interested in Vipassana meditation and studied with some really wonderful teachers in that lineage and, um, and got very intense about that. I, 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 I was at one point where I was doing mindfulness practices, just going on retreats where you didn't speak at all, where you just noted everything, you know, eating, eating, walking, walking, <laughs> sitting, sitting, think, thinking. The, you know, you just went through your whole day like that. You'd actually think the thought corresponding to the thing you were doing. You'd think you'd, eat, you'd be eating, but you'd think the word eating. Well, it was like, yeah. Mm -hmm. hmm. Just to kind of note it and to kind of try. It was trying to point you to just being present in the experience itself. Right. But a lot of times, like like we talked before, people get caught up in the technique and they miss the idea that hey this is meant to be a means to an end it's meant to point you beyond itself and you know you can get very uh, sort of um, uh, caught in a technique Right. I would say and also there's something I think misleading about the whole thing and this is where I think a lot of these sort of neo-Advedic people get down on practices uh, because they say well you know, awareness is already present. You don't, you don't have to do anything to get there. It's already here, which is true. But there are little things that can point you toward, toward recognizing that, I think. And that's what I think practices are meant to be, pointers that point you to that spacious awareness that's always already present. 
But uh, a lot of times people get so caught in the practice itself and the doing of it, you know, that they miss the, the end. Yeah, they, they focus on the finger rather than the moon that, fi- that the finger is pointing at. That's a great analogy, yeah. yeah. And, and I, I think I did that for a long time. I, for many years I was very intensely involved, but I had little glimpses, you know, little glimpses of the now, little glimpses of the present moment, little glimpses of the always present awareness, spacious awareness in which every single thing that exists you know, arises and ceases, and I'd get little glimpses of it. And so then my perception was, okay, this is something that's outside of me, and I have to do all these practices to try to get it. Or I have to, it's like a trait, like learning how to play the piano or something, and I have to practice and practice and practice so I get really good at it, you know? Yeah. The, I think that that's, again, missing the forest for the trees, sort of, but I was sincerely seeking and I guess I had to go through some years. Apparently, I did because that's what happened. <laughs> so uh, I went through some years of that type of seeking, and it was very intense. And I learned a lot. I mean, I learned a lot, but um, ultimately, it was a it was a very coming and going kind of experience. Yeah, I mean, in a way, it it, it sounds silly when we say, well, you, you know, it's like you know, compare it to playing the piano where you have to practice and practice until you get good at it. But there's, I think there is a legitimate comparison in the sense that, you know, when you're doing something like that, um, or take gymnastics, which is very much in the air these days, if you've been watching the Olympics, there's there's a certain kind of conditioning that the nervous system undergoes in order, in which it, you know, over time becomes kind of ingrained in its functioning to display a certain ability, like piano playing or gymnastic abilities or whatever and if you didn't practice even though potentially you have the ability that that ability isn't going to be realized and it's like that with guitar i mean i play guitar guitar, sure you go through learning chords learning chord progressions learning all these different things and and then eventually it becomes second nature to you and you just do it naturally and you don't even have to think about it it just kind of flows out of you yeah and you know i think maybe yeah, that's the idea, I think, with all kind of practice. Events. So when you're living in presence, you know, fully, there's, you know, there's something going on in the nervous system that is enabling that to, be, to you to do that and enabling that to take place. And that, you know, may not just turn on like a light switch. Uh, it may need to be cultured over time until it eventually becomes sort of stabilized in, in, the, in the functioning of the nervous system. That's interesting. I, I don't think in terms like that about nervous systems and things, but uh, I... You got one. <laughs> I do, I'm sure. You have a brain. Yeah, yeah. I do. Well, sometimes I wonder. <laughs> but I, I do, um, you know, it's funny because we were just talking about this whole thing of is it sudden, is it is it gradual, you know. And like I say, for me it was both. I mean, I went through this gradual thing and, mm-hmm. you know, a sense of presence and awareness would arrive and then it would kind of seem to go away. And it was like that for many, many, many years. And I kind of came to the conclusion after a while, well, that's just the way it is. It comes and goes. You never, you're never stable in this. It just sometimes you feel that pres- sense of presence, and then sometimes you don't, and that's just the way it is. And then, like several years ago, one day, and I can put a date on it and everything, it hit me that I, w- I was in church one day. It, 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 I was in church um, going through a, a church service, and it was like I got hit by lightning or something. I mean, suddenly there was this deep sense of presence, deep sense of awareness. And 
unlike the other times that had arisen and kind of hit me and come into my life, I suddenly saw in, an, in a split kind of instant that that awareness had always been there. That presence of God, that awareness, that consciousness, whatever name you want to put on it, it had always, always been there. It couldn't not be there. Like, it's just like, there's no way it can't be present. Right. How can you, how, you know, like you exist, okay? You exist, I exist. Can you not exist? Or could you somehow exist more than you do right now? Or could you exist less? You know, you either exist or you don't, right? And that's sort of what came to me, what, what seemed, suddenly became absolutely clear to me was that this awareness, this consciousness, is eternally present. Always has been, always will be. And once I saw that so clearly, it's never left since. It's just there. It's just always there. Uh, yeah, well, it's not much you can say about that. Yeah. <laughs> it's now, hard to talk about. No, you're, talking, you're doing well. Um, and, you know, of course, it has always been there, but it hadn't always been there in, in your experience. No. Uh, but now it is. And it wasn't always there at all in the experience of the other people in that church service, you know, and yet it was right there on some level for them, but it wasn't realized. And right. now what, what many teachers will do these days, and I consider it a rather unskillful means of teaching, is get up and just sort of describe what you just described and expect people to get it on the basis of that description. Uh, and maybe sometimes some do, you know, maybe if they're ripe or at least they get some kind of intellectual familiarity with it. Uh, but it's not, it's not the substitute for the so-called real thing, you know? No, I can tell you that by experience. <laughs> it's the real thing is so amazing. Man. Yeah. You, you can't describe it, and you can't, you can't conceptualize it. Even these words I'm saying, you know, they're, I, hopefully they're pointing to it in a certain sense, but... It's a very poor pointer. It, you know, you have to realize it. It has to be a living reality in yeah. your life. And I, I think that's what all spirituality and religion is proposing to be about. Unfortunately, it's not always what it is about. But uh, that's certainly, I think, what it's meant to be about. Well, you know my favorite little phrase that I always say, uh, don't mistake understanding for realization. So, you know, it would be people would be selling themselves short if they accepted or settled for uh, an understanding of what you've just been describing for the real living experience of it, it would be a tragedy. It's like reading a beautiful poem about oranges yeah. and biting into an orange. Right. It's the different, you know, it's a totally different thing we're talking about. Um, yeah. Not that a beautiful poem about uh, biting into an orange wouldn't be wonderful, you know, that's great, but has far, its limitations, it's doesn't far, it? Far cry from the experience of the orange. Far cry if you've ever bitten into a really good, great, sweet orange. Yeah. You know? yeah. So. Yeah, so the, this, this point dwells, I mean, bears dwelling upon, I think, that what all this spiritual stuff is about is a living experience. In case anybody doesn't get that, I think most people do, but maybe not everyone does. It's, it's a living experience. It's not a, an intellectual facility with the concept of it or an intuitive sense that it's, it's there or, you know, or anything else. It's living 24-7. Well, yeah, I think so. And even, even the, the reality of this that we're talking about now, I think the only way to teach this, I often say it's, it's caught, not taught. It's it, caught? 
like, caught, like a, not taught, like like a, like a flu or something. Yeah, <laughs> that's a negative. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, caught, not taught. That you know, you can say all the right words. You can have a, a you can have an amazing intellectual grasp of non-duality, for example, and and be eloquent and 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 be able to just talk about it for hours on end and maybe keep people spellbound on a certain sort of intellectual level, mm-hmm. but. If you don't have that realization in your life, if you don't have a kind of direct scene of that, nobody's going to. People might catch a kind of intellectual curiosity and stimulation, but the, I think the thing itself is somehow um, intuited or picked up. I, and the reason we pick it up from others is because it's already who we are. We're already that. We're totally already that. All of us. And when we see that in someone else, it's almost like looking into a mirror. You just, you know, when I when I look at a picture, for example, of Ramana Maharshi, I, I just dissolve. I, I, it's so beautiful just to look into his eyes, and it's just a photo. Yeah. You know, but it's like you. There's something in you. This, in fact, it's this awareness. It's this consciousness in me that recognizes the consciousness that was in him. Mm-hmm. And 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 I think that's. That's, that's, what the, that's what the phrase namaste means, you know? Yeah, like kind of saying, okay, I, I, I bow to like the Christ in you, the, the, the sacred divinity in you, and it's also in me. It's in everyone. It's in everything. It's in every single uh, uh, form, you know? It's that, it's that formlessness going into form. Now, there's something coming up there on the screen. I'm a little afraid it's... I think we're okay. Everything's okay, okay. Everything's groovy. <laughs> well, you know, this caught, taught, not taught thing is a, is a good one um, because, well, traditionally, and probably every tradition, including yours, um, it was known that sort of being in the company of the enlightened, so to speak, would, you know, get, would infuse you with that. Um, it's just like if you hang around a lot of people who have the flu, chances are you're going to get it. <laughs> right, right. And that's what satsang is all about, you know, being in the company you know, of truth, and, and you know, there's the, this word transmission, I don't know what the, well, in, in the Vedic terminology, that would be called darshan, where there's a, um, an actual sort of resonance that takes place between, you know, the, the teacher and the students, uh, or even between, among the whole group, which gets everyone sort of attuned to a, a higher level of awareness. And Ramana, his his main teaching, I mean, people always say, oh yeah, self-inquiry, but really his main teaching was just sort of basking in his silence if if you were so fortunate as to be in his presence and you know becoming so attuned in that way to to that level of awareness well like the little book I wrote I have a chapter at the end of there called the purest teaching is silence Mm -hmm. and really one day that just uh, one morning I was on a retreat and I wrote that chapter just sitting at a little table in my room and um, I had had a particularly deep experience of silence that morning of just sort of basking in that and that in fact that if i had to describe like if i do practice now i wouldn't call it practice really it doesn't seem like practice but usually for several hours every morning i just sit in this silence and i just sort of am completely absorbed in that mm. for several hours usually i i mean i don't keep track of it but it seems right. to be about that amount of time normally and um just marinate. <laughs> marinate, yeah. Well, for four months after this happened, I could barely speak, and I, I pretty much marinated all the time. I would, really? Yeah. <laughs> it was very intense. After this happened, 
Let's, let's, do, let's backtrack a little bit. I mean, we kind of glossed over it, but say what more can you say about the actual awakening uh, that you had in that church? Mm-hmm. Can you say more than you said? Well, yeah, it was just suddenly, I was actually at Mass. I was at Mass. Were you officiating or just participating? No, I was just uh, participating. I'm not a priest. I'm a, I, I was a brother, okay. so I was an ordained priest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was at, we went to Mass every day in the community. So I was there at Mass. The priest held up the, the host, the, the wafer. Wafer, red wafer. He said, oh, he said, Cor de Christ. It was in French. He said, body of Christ. He stuck it in my hand. And I looked down at this little wafer in my hand, and I thought, uh, it wasn't even I thought, it was like a, a flash. A flash came to me. He's putting this in our hands, and we're looking at it, and we're thinking that we know what this is. And suddenly it occurred to me, I don't know what this is. Put the wafer in my hand, I looked down at it, and suddenly it was like, I would say it was like I had no language. I had no thoughts. Like the mind just stopped. There were no thoughts. I just looked at this in wonder, and I had no idea what it was. And suddenly, I just like, what is this? So it wasn't even words. It was just like, what is everything? It was like my, my, my conceptual sort of abilities just stopped. <laughs> and, and even my sense of myself, of God, everything just sort of, it was gone. It was, it was clean gone. And for a while, for probably about a week after that, I thought maybe I was losing my mind. I wasn't sure. I, it really was very um, destabilizing at first. I, I didn't know what to think. Um, and then I, I was on a search. Like I was looking at mystics. I was reading all these. I was pretty familiar with the works of like John of the Cross and people like that. And I was then on a search to try to comprehend what had happened to me. Although I was filled with bliss. There was a, there was a deep bliss there. But there was like hardly any thinking going on. <laughs> hmm. the, the, the thinking faculty just turned off, like just completely turned off. And, uh, and yet, the funny thing about that is I could function so well. I, 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 I wasn't like thinking about things at all, but I was just functioning. I was doing things. I was writing talks. I was giving talks. I was ministering to people. I was visiting the dying and elderly and stuff. And words were coming out of my mouth and and in fact people seemed to be more touched by what i said or what i did or just my simple presence and it it was a whole it was a whole different experience of living really but your um, subjective experience at that time i mean everyone saw you as being like really together and you're functioning well and you're inspiring them but your subjective experience was that you were kind of on autopilot and you didn't know what was going on and you you thought no, maybe I went autopilot sounds kind of like a zombie that's kind of going through. <laughs> it, it was more like I was just in bliss. Yeah, yeah, just, just, in, like, just bathing in that. Incredible. Uh, I still... oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. No apologies. Um. Sometimes it just hits me. Yeah. Uh, You can edit this stuff, right? No, no. People love this stuff. <laughs> to see some guy blubbering on the screen. Anyway, yeah, um, yeah it was just like a, I was just swimming in this bliss, but there was still all this functioning going on. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes, I, I, sometimes that thought would arise like, 
how is this possible? Like, how am I doing all this high-functioning stuff and I'm not giving it a moment's thought? It's just kind of happening through me. And my sense really was, there's a, there's a little scripture in St. Paul where he says, it is now not I who live, but Christ lives in me. Mm-hmm. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Mm-hmm. And it was like that. It was like the Christ or consciousness or what you could call it a lot of different things but this reality was just this blissful reality was just functioning through this body and mind uh and 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 i was just kind of watching it happen and it it still it it just hasn't gone away i think i've adjusted to it a little it's not so strange now it's more like just normal but for four months i really went through a little bit of an adjustment kind of a a learning curve. <laughs> I don't know what you call it. Uh, and I called my Vipassana teacher friend a lot, Eric Kolvig. He's a wonderful friend and teacher. And I called him a lot. He kind of, you know, I was like, what's going on with me? What's, you know? And he was saying, no, I think this is good. This is a good thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it, you're definitely uh, coming into all this stuff we've been talking about and trying to practice for all these years. And so, but it was a, it was a big, big shift. Shift is a good word for it. Mm. Shift happens, as they say. <laughs> it's a bumper sticker. Um, well, yeah, I was going to say, because you were referring to it in the past tense, you know, I, this, I, it was this and it was that. But then, of course, you went on and uh, added that it's, it wasn't just past, it's now, but you have integrated or adjusted to it, which I think is an important point. At first, it was just so different. I mean, the whole sense of being was totally turned upside down. And I don't know, I think it would be kind of normal for most people to have a little bit of an adjustment period where it really, really, I I didn't, even though it was wonderful, filled with bliss, filled with joy, filled with peace, but I, I, I I mean, on a a kind of conceptual or intellectual level, I had no idea what had happened to me. I I knew that I was somehow uh, experiencing this deep sense of union with God, what I would call God, but... um, it was a mystery, you know, and I and I couldn't talk about it. I mean, I went to my spiritual director. I kind of stammered out this thing happened to me, and he sort of asked me a few questions, and I tried to answer them, but I I couldn't. And a lot of times when I would try, I would ha- just what happened to me just now. I would just get hit. I'd get a hit of this stuff. Mm-hmm. This this bliss would just sort of overwhelm me, and I just start. I dissolve. I I couldn't even speak, uh-huh. uh, and that went on for. I would say four months, a good four months. It was really uh, funny, funny, kind of interesting. It's an, there's an interesting thing here. I have this friend who watches all the interviews and everything and has declined to be interviewed um, because she feels like there's really no one there to, the, to, to a sufficient degree that she could actually conduct and, and be interviewed, you know. Um, and so we have this kind of debate about, you know, is is it is there a point at which you know you'd have to you could be so far gone that you couldn't hold down a job on the New York Stock Exchange or any kind of practical thing you wouldn't want to be flying an airplane you know with hundreds a couple hundred people in it um, or is it possible to integrate any degree of realization with practical life. Um, and you know there are kind of examples and arguments on both sides of it. There are these Indian saints like Neem Karoli Baba and 
you know, Ananda Moima, who pretty much had to be fed and kept from wandering off into the forest. <laughs> you know, they, 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 you know, you couldn't imagine, or even, you know, Ramana Maharshi, you couldn't imagine him sort of working as a, uh, you know, railroad conductor or some, something really down to earth. Uh, or is it is that just that it's not their dharma and it's and they're just serving the function for which they were designed and and perhaps there could be a, a fully realized to 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 the same degree person living in in very practical circumstances. Uh, it's an open question. I'm not sort of coming down on it one way or the other. I, I you know I think that um, it's certainly for me anyway. I can only speak from my own experience. I, I don't really know a lot about other people's experience with all this stuff, but I I think for me it was a matter of just a kind of adjustment. I you know when it first happened, I was just it blew my mind. I mean, I I really it literally blew my mind, and and I didn't really know what had happened. And, and yet the ironic thing, like I said, I was functioning very well, even better than usual, I would say, and yet there was no. There was no concern about the function. It was just function was happening through me, mm-hmm. through this body. Automatically. But, huh? Automatically. Automatically, kind of. Yeah. And I was just sort of watching it happen. And sometimes I was impressed. You know, sometimes I would go, wow, that went well, you know, for, for not having put any thought into it. <laughs> I, I would get up and give talks just extemporaneously. It would just come through me, and people would be crying, and people would be really moved, and I would think, Wow, that's really different, you know. Before I would prepare talks and, you know, take a, a normal amount of kind of uh, 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 preparation, and um, I just wasn't able to do that at that point. Although gradually I sort of readjusted, and you know, this 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 really hits on a point that you and I have talked about. I know that I I think is very important is this idea of the absolute and relative. Mm-hmm. These the that you know. On an absolute level, we are just this pure consciousness and this awareness and uh, this bliss, you know. And and yet, there is a reality on a relative level. I am Francis, and I have certain, uh, you know, responsibilities, you could say. I have certain roles I play in life. And um, more and more, for me, there's a, like a, a, a deeper and deeper and deeper integration of these two levels. And more and more, it's just like there's no problem with either one of these levels. They're they're both absolutely valid. And while I'm moving through the relative world of roles and things, you know, like I could be an uncle, a, a friend, uh, you know, uh, I could play different roles. I could be a spiritual advisor to somebody or something. It's a role I play. It's not who I am on any on any absolute level, but it's got its place. It's got its its sort of function. And uh, for me, there's just no problem between those two. Like to say that, I mean, I don't know what your friend's going through with, a, you know, maybe she's going through a, a developmental sort of phase of integration of some. Uh, she, deep... she, she seems to feel that she's really done. And, uh, the, you know, she's one of these people, and I've interviewed a number of them, who when you talk about, okay, well, where does it go from here? You know, what's your sense of further progress? And they kind of scratch their heads and say, well, I'm done. You know, how could there be progress? It's it's finished. Um, See, I mean, on an absolute level, that's true. I think on a relative level, it's never finished. 
Yeah, that's the way I see it, but I can't, you know, I mean, when people say that, all I, the best I can do is say, well, let's see what happens. Let's see where you are in 10 years. But it seems to me there's never any end to growth. And there may not be growth of the absolute. How can that grow? It, 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 no, you know, it can't but, grow. But in terms of integration, the word you just used, um, is there any end to that? Is there any, I don't think so. And by let's define integration. Well, let's you define integration. I think integration is the interfacing of two things that seemingly are, are different. And then I think the integration process is the kind of gradual realization that they're not different. They're, they're just two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're not at all opposed to one another in any way, shape, or form. It's like that old uh, thing from that Mahayana Sutra that says, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Form is none other than emptiness, emptiness is none other than form. The Heart Sutra, I think it's called. They used to chant it in the Zen practice I did. And I think what that's saying is that these levels are absolutely one. I mean, the whole idea of non-duality is not two. It's non-dual. It's everything's one. Well, then the relative and absolute can't be absolutely opposed to one another. That's What is that? Duality. It's duality, right. <laughs> so, it's, not, it's not Advaita. Well... You know, so my sense is that uh, the growing sort of, and this is a this is one area of growth, is where you gradually come to a sense that there's absolutely no contradiction between these two things whatsoever, none at all. It's like there was a book by Ken Wilber, and I uh, can't remember the name of it. I read a couple books by him, but he had this one where he had a a lens, and it was a concave lens. But it was like saying, well, it's convex and concave at the same time. Right. Any convex lens is also a concave lens. Just flip it over. It's a concave. Then it's convex. Then it's concave. Is, there, you know, are, is convex and concave opposed to one another? No. It's, yeah. See, that, it's the same. It's just an analogy or a metaphor. But I think it's the same with the relative and the absolute. There's just absolutely no. The relative is absolute, and the absolute's relative. In a certain sense, it, the, the absolute is relative in the sense that the, the relative is a, is a manifestation of the absolute. And we couldn't have any kind of appreciation for the absolute unless there was a relative. To, you see what I'm saying? I don't know. It's hard. Very, it's kind yeah, of, absolutely. Very I mean, paradoxical it, kind of language. It kind of gets us back to why the creation exists in the first place. Uh, you know? Who knows? I, I'm not sure about that one. Well, it's... <laughs> But think about it. If if there weren't a creation, then could the absolute really appreciate itself? Right. Right. You know? I mean, like, say, look, just look at the concept of space. If you had infinite space with no objects appearing in it, then you couldn't really understand or have any kind of graph of space without the objects. If there was just space, well, there'd be nothing in a certain way. Mm -hmm. uh, and if, but if there's just one little object in the space, then you can suddenly become very conscious of the space somehow. Yeah. So, I mean, that it limps. All analogies limp, as they say. But it sort of points to this idea that, you know, the relative can't exist without the absolute. And in a certain sense, the absolute can't exist or stand out or be perceptible without the relative. So, <clears throat> is emptiness, emptiness is form. This gets back to sort of the Andrew Cohen theme of evolutionary enlightenment, you know, a 14 billion year process in which, 
these sophisticated instruments have evolved to the point where they can, where the absolute can realize itself in as a living reality. You know, hmm. uh, um, I, I want to just dwell on the concept of uh, integration just for another moment because it may seem that that word has a, um, a connotation of just overcoming a handicap that that sort of afflicts one when realization takes place in which you no longer can function properly and you have to get integrated in order to you know, carry on an ordinary life. But I, I think it goes way beyond that uh, to uh, you know, degrees to which um, divinity or the light of God can be radiated through the form of an enlightened person and that, you know, and that can become very, very, very powerful. Yeah, I mean, it seems that's what it wants to do, doesn't it? <laughs> I don't know why. It's kind of interesting, but it seems like it kind of enjoys this, <laughs> all these forms, all these plants and trees and animals and insects. And, you know, it just it's amazing. I mean, anymore, I just look around and see all these things. And I'm sometimes I'm just blown away by the beauty and the, the wonder of it all. It's just so hmm. it's amazing. And, and, and yet that seems to be what the absolute wants, for lack of a better wants to do. It, it loves to play like that. It's just, it's, it's odd, isn't it? It's yeah. Yeah. One thing that you and I talked about outside of this interview uh, was your experience of being aware during sleep. And um, yeah. I was thinking about that, and maybe you could talk about it a little bit, and I'll, then I'll give you a few quotes from people that um, I kind of came up with after we had that conversation. Oh, that would be interesting for me, because I... I've asked a few people that I run across that have had little sort of awakenings or claiming to have big awakenings or whatever, and I haven't really run across too much about it, but it's just since this happened to me, my experience of sleep and dream and waking, of course, uh, we've already talked about the, the difference in the waking experience a little, but uh, especially dream and sleep have really changed a lot. I uh, This awareness, like under kind of coming to a, a discovery of the fact in a certain way that this this spacious awareness and consciousness is just always present it can't ne it can't not be present it's just there and it's just there when i sleep too it's really interesting uh, and it's hard to put into words exactly because it's like when you're asleep uh, there's no objects like there's no body there's no world there's no you know but there's still that awareness is still fully there and yet there's nothing for it to be aware of but itself if that makes sense I don't know and uh, it's like you're not really when when I wake up there's a sense that that's what's been going on this awareness has just been there but when I'm actually in the sleep it's it's totally empty it's just awareness and there's since there's no objects I don't know. It's really hard to put into words. You're I don't saying know. it pretty well. I mean, really? the, the faculty which would say to itself, "Oh, cool, I'm having this inner awareness." Well, yeah, thinking, not, that, that that's shut off. You know, that's you're asleep. Totally but, yeah, yeah that's a waking state function, and the yeah. waking state isn't there. Well, that uh, doesn't even exist very much in the waking state now, but it it doesn't exist at all in right. deep sleep. Yeah. So it's a whole different. Well, <laughs> it's it's not in one way. It's not different. It's the exact same. It's the exact same experience. It's not an experience, but it's the exact same. Ah, words always just 
totally break down about this time. Um, that's what's always there. That awareness is what's always there. It's who I am, really, on an absolute level. And, it, and I don't stop being who I am when I'm asleep. I guess that's a simple way to put it. Yeah. It's still, still there. It's still present. The quotes I thought of were, um, well, there's that, that verse from the Song of Solomon in the Bible, I sleep, oh, yeah, I sleep though my heart waketh. I love that. That, yeah. really, that really, I think, really says it. Yeah. yeah. And then um, there was a thing from Ramana Maharshi that somebody sent me. I meant to, to print it out, and I forgot to, but basically he was referring to the same experience. And, uh, and I don't know, maybe I'll post it on your page on BatGap, uh, the exact quote. But um, it was, you know, very clear that's what he was talking about. Huh. And uh, then there was this, uh, there was this great yogi who lived in the caves outside Rishikesh uh, named Tatwala Baba. And one time somebody asked him, "Do you sleep?" And he said, "What would happen to the world if I slept?" <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, they sa- then they said, "You should come to London." And he said, "I am London." <laughs> A little non-dual stand-up comedy there. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't really. Um, the other thing too that's interesting is I don't sleep much at all anymore. Yeah. It's kind of strange. I uh, uh, I don't seem to need uh, as many hours. No, but I'm like full of energy all the time. It, it it certainly my energy since this thing has happened is much greater, much much more vital and and just you know I just never seem to lose energy. But uh, I don't I don't need very much sleep. I w- I go to bed late now, and I wake up really really early. And uh, and then even when I'm asleep, it's it's, I mean, it's restful. The body's resting, but there's still consciousness is still fully there. But it's it's strange. I, I don't know. I, I you know I'm not trying to make some big deal about it or anything. But it was just I think I asked you because you're so, so knowledgeable about these things, and I'm really not. I don't I don't uh, you know I, I have my experience. But uh, and I've read you know like I read a lot of stuff of Ramana Maharshi. And um, he didn't write a lot, but I read everything he wrote. And uh, he's made, in talks by Ramana Maharshi, I ran across little little kind of snippets of reference to this, but I never really heard much about it. And, it, uh, and then when I mentioned it to you, you said, oh, no, that's a, you seem to know about it. So I was curious. Well, about the it. reason I do is that in, in the TM movement, uh, you know, which was my background, Maharshi made a big deal of that. And he said it's really the acid test of, of self-realization. If you lose awareness during sleep, you're not self-realized. Um, you may huh. think you may think you are. It might seem to be there in the waking state, but if you're out like a light with no inner awareness during sleep, then it's not fully established. And uh, and of course, he didn't consider that to be a final state. There's some kind of cool stuff way beyond that, but that was the the, the kind of the huh. you know, like I say. I don't know though because I've I've heard a few people um, on your on your site that you interviewed. And you asked that question a couple times, I remember, and um, they said no, that wasn't their that they weren't conscious during sleep, and and they seemed pretty awake to me. Like what they said really resonated with me, and I felt a sense that they're they're seeing this because there's something about this when this happens to you, and even saying it happens to you isn't accurate at all. But anyway, for the sake of conversation, when this happens to you. You you recognize it in other people, like it's hard to explain, but just when you see somebody, even just see them, they don't even have to open their mouth. Mm-hmm. But especially when they open their mouth and they start talking about it, you get that, okay, they're they really see this too. There's yeah. like a sense of there's a sense of, of of 
I don't know how to explain it. It's almost like recognizing somebody in your family. Like maybe you had a brother that you never knew about, and you see him, and you go, oh, wow, he looks like me. He's, he, he, he's, he somehow must be a brother or something. You just sort of know it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's funny. Yeah. Well, I, you know, in my fundamentalist TM days, I would have said, yes, it's absolutely a necessity. You have to have awareness during sleep. Now it's like, who knows? And I don't, you know, I don't know many things. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't know nothing. Exactly. Yeah. And I actually have friends. I, we, we used to have this weekly satsang. It's still going on here in town. I used to go to it every week before I started doing Bat Gap. But I remember one evening, I just kind of like really dwelt on that point and made the whole evening about it. And I just kept asking all these guys, you know, and I said, like, if, you know, if I gave you a million, like, and most of them said, you know, it was, for me, it was a phase and, you know, I'd rather be out like a light and I'd just rather be asleep. Um, now, well, maybe that'll happen with me. I don't maybe know. Maybe it will. Who knows? This has only been, it's going on three years now, so. But uh, uh, that friend of our, that friend of ours, whom we've spoke with, uh, that I referred you to, uh, oh, who, right. who, who wishes to remain anonymous. Yeah, he, he yeah. said he hasn't lost awareness since he was like ten years old. Yeah, and, uh, he, he and was, he's in his mid sixties. He was great for me to talk to because he confirmed a lot of the strange sort of aspects of this in my experience. And he was like, "Oh no, that's perfectly fine." He was like, "Real matter of fact." <laughs> oh no, that's that's normal. Because I, I was full of questions. You know, I, I really have been in an environment where I really didn't have much opportunity to talk to anybody who had had this kind of a thing happen to them. And I was always searching for that. I was like, I would, if a spiritual director or somebody like that would come through town, you know, I would, if I got a chance to talk to them, I'd kind of ask them a little, you know, do you have any kind of funny experiences when you sleep? <laughs> they they kind of look at me like, what? <laughs> and nobody knew what I was talking about, but... Uh, Anyway, I was looking for somebody in my own tradition who I felt sort of understood me, and I yeah. didn't really find it, to be honest. But. <clears throat> well, I, I think if you were able to get in the time machine and go talk to... Uh, Meister Eckhart, maybe. Yeah, him or <laughs> Teresa of Avila, or, you know, one, uh, yeah. one of these people, you'd, you'd find a lot of answers, a lot of... Yeah, you know, They would know so. a lot about this... I, I, I haven't read much Christian mysticism myself, so I don't know, but I'm sure it's, it's there. I've been reading Christian mysticism since I was like 16 years old, so, and yeah. I, it, it's definitely there. It's definitely yeah. there, but you, you kind of have to read between the lines a little bit. It's also filled, you know, a lot of Christian mystics were very, very uh, immersed in doctrinal stuff and all that, in theological kind of understanding of things, and it's couched in a certain kind of uh, system, religious system. Mm. But the thing that's fascinating to me is when I read these other traditions, what we're talking about is in every major religious tradition in the world. It's this non-duality, this sense of oneness with the sacred, with the divine, with God, is at the heart of every religion. And it's just talked about in different terminology, you know, different personalities kind of expressing it, but in essence it's the same reality, isn't it? It's interesting. Yeah. And it's also translated through different translators from other languages, and who knows but, what the yeah. translators are doing to it. Oh, yeah. I think that a lot when I read the Bible now. Yeah. Like, I read words of Jesus, and I think, I don't think so. Yeah, firstly, think... nothing was written down for a couple hundred years, and then after, right. and then, then you got some guy translating from the Aramaic and maybe into the Hebrew and, you know, into the Greek, and even if they go straight from the Aramaic, you know, there's a lot dependent upon the level of consciousness or clarity of the translator. Right. And then you got monks kind of copying it down century after century, and Maybe somebody told a joke and he got distracted and copied it down. <laughs> you know, I mean, who knows? I don't know. But, 
all those things also take on a lot less like the idea of sacred scripture and it's you know inspired and it's like I, yeah I believe it's inspired but I believe the Bhagavad Gita is inspired too and I believe the accounts of St. Francis the little flowers of St. Francis are inspired they're all though written through human instruments and so right. they're not going to be somehow perfect they're going to have you know little all these little things we're talking about and yet there's something that's conveyed in them again they're just pointers all this stuff it just points it points to this absolute reality that can't even be talked about. Mm. You know, this interview itself is is proof that it can't be talked about because I'm blah, blah, blah. You know, I don't, <laughs> I don't know how to talk about it. I do the best I can. And in a certain sense, I somehow feel that, that this consciousness wants, to, wants me to talk about it. I, it. It seems that I find myself talking about it and people seem to find it helpful. But like a lot of times, even as I'm saying something, I'm feeling like, well, that's not really accurate. I mean, you know, like the words I'm using are very poorly pointing, but they're not, it's not, and, and the conclusion I've come to is there's no words that exist that are adequate. They just don't exist. Yeah. For anything, you know, as, as, for I often, for, as I often bring up, I mean, try, try to use words to describe the color red. You just fall flat. You can't do it. Right. Um, or the smell of a rose. You know, there's the, just the realm of experience, the, the, the realm of words is a pretty poor substitute for the realm of experience it's just sort of beautiful i love words yeah. i love to write. i write poetry i love to write i just love it but it's limited you know it's it's very limited but it can point it can point and it helps people uh in some ways but it's inadequate totally when you had your awakening if um if you are okay with referring to it that way um, did you pretty much I refer more, to it some way? I guess. <laughs> yeah. Did you more or less immediately um, not only realize your, that I am that presence or uh, presence of God or whatever, but that all of this is is that as well? All of this is, or did was that a phase that came later on? No, it all came at once. <laughs> uh -huh. It was totally clear that this awareness, this consciousness that I am, absolutely pervades every form that exists as we call it exists you know that it's that all of these things um for lack of a better term they flow out of this absolute reality they flow out of that they're like manifestations of it they're i don't know does that make sense i'm yeah. not Okay. So you never really went through a witnessing phase where you know consciousness was seen as distinct from or separate from the relative, absolute and relative didn't get separated out. It was um, no, I went I went through that er, a lot earlier, but uh, you know, and it wasn't always present. But the witness was present in a lot, a lot of the time. You know, I was I was the witness. That was sort of over the years. That seemed to be. A, a kind of shift that was more or less permanent, but it wasn't really totally permanent. But when this happened, that fell away with everything else. The witness fell away as much as, you know, my concept of God or, you know, everything fell away. Because mm. the, the witness thing, I mean, a lot of therapies and stuff use that idea too of witness, the witness and all that, witnessing consciousness and so on. But that's not the final, I mean, that's not the spacious awareness that it, it arises and ceases in the spacious awareness, like everything else, mm -hmm. the witness, you know. Um, it seems like sometimes I hear different teachers talk about the witness as if it's some kind of, like, end. It's like, that's it, that, that witness. And 
my my sense is no that's not quite it that, that you know it's a phase it's certainly a, a kind of a, a development along the path but it's i don't think it's the final destination not really right that's my sense of it anyway yeah no i would agree um there's a, there's a chapter in your book about the search for happiness. And uh, when you read that chapter, it seems so obvious that it's almost a cliche to say that happiness is really within us. It's not uh, really a, f- a function of what's going on outside. And, yeah. yet, and yet it's not obvious to the vast It doesn't majority. seem to be when you look around, <laughs> does it? No. <laughs> and yeah. even, even an awakened person, I mean... St. John of the Cross, for instance, was confined in a little tiny room for 14 years. He couldn't lie down. He couldn't stand up. His food was thrown in among his feces. He was in a very dire circumstance. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I wonder to what extent his inner happiness was able to sustain him under those circumstances. Because, you know, some, some situations seem to challenge it. And others, to you know, to contrast the situation like that with taking a nice hike in the in the mountains in fresh air. Yeah. And it, it seems like you're going to be a lot happier. But in your own experience, is is there something that's just rock solid regardless of the vicissitudes of of life? Well, I mean, again, there, there's a relative answer to that, and there's an absolute answer to that. I mean, uh-huh. the relative answer is, yeah, I would be relatively more happy hiking in the Sierras than I would in a prison cell in Toledo eating gruel, you know. Right. But the deepest, most absolute happiness is unconditional. It, 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 it like, it, it's like it's innate in this absolute reality we're talking about. This happiness is what that is. It is happiness itself. Hmm. It, is, it is stability. It is happiness. It is peace. It is joy. It's all these things we think we're looking for in all these objects and situations and so on. And yeah, I mean, there is a relative truth to, yeah, I would prefer if you gave me a choice, you said, okay, you can be walk, you can be hiking with Rick in the Sierras and uh, have a picnic lunch in the middle of the day and, and bird watch and, or you can be in a prison cell. Right. Well, I would probably choose the hike, you know, yeah. but, but if I'm, if I'm in, in, if I'm plugged into this source of absolute unconditional happiness, it's there. It's just like that awareness when you sleep, you know. It's there. It's always there. It, it doesn't leave. I mean, and you know, I don't mean to be trivialize other people's pain or other people's suffering because, you know, I, I have led a relatively comfortable life, you know. It's easy for me to philosophize from my ivory tower of comfort and, and you know, a uh, 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 first world sort of security and all this. And, you know, if I were starving and living in a drain tile, you know, maybe I'd look at it differently. I don't know. But yeah. so far, anyway, my sense is that true happiness, the deepest, most, you know, the absolute happiness, really doesn't have anything to do with, with our circumstances or, you know. Mm. Does that make sense? I mean, both are true. There's a relative reality here that we, I think we have to honor and we have to be, be real about. And there's an absolute truth. And, you know... That's just the way. That's the way reality is, isn't it? It's just it's it's both and. It's not either or. It's both and. Always. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is. It's uh, so good. I wanted to elicit that from you. Mm-hmm. Um, when you uh, sit in the morning for several hours in silence, is is it really like complete absorption, or do you have like oh, I want to think of what uh, 
have this for lunch and that. Oh, yeah, I should have called that guy yesterday. And the little thoughts like that come up, or is it complete like immersion in in the absolute? No, it's pretty immersed. It's like sinking into something. I don't know how to explain it or describe it. It's like a. I mean, in a way, it's always here. That peace, that tranquility, that silence is just. It can't not be here. It's here right now. It's always here right now. And that never, that's just the way it is. But when in the morning, it, when you do that, it's there exclusively. Well, then I close my eyes and it's there exclusively. Like right. when, when there's no objects present anymore. And when, and when you close your, just close your eyes, what's there? It's just that awareness. That's what's there. Yeah, but the average person who just closes their eyes, their mind's still buzzing along, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, something happened. Uh, well, I even have that one point in the one chapter about that there is no mind, you know, and that's what's come to me is that the idea of a mind, when we talk about mind, and I even use the word mind, it's a, it's a relative, there's a relatively, there's a mind, but on an absolute level, there is no entity called the mind. It, it, you know, there's functioning, there's the thinking function. and well, that's, on an absolute level, there's nothing. No. T- totally absolute level. There's no body either. But on, right. on a relative level, don't we have these faculties? Well, yeah. But, but my experience anymore is that there's a thinking function. Mm-hmm. There's a thinking function that still functions fine. In fact, it functions even better now. Just that, as there's a seeing function and a hearing function. Yeah, a, there's yeah. a seeing function, but there's not an entity there. There's it just there's thinking, hmm. you know, just like, I don't know. What's a good example? Uh, I like analogies and metaphors and examples. I think it's really useful because all this stuff is so impossible to talk about that if you just have a little metaphor, somebody might get a little, oh, yeah, I see. I, right. They get a little glimpse, but I can't, I, I'll have to see if someone... Uh, it'll, something will come to you. Yeah, um, but anyway, there, yeah, my experience is that there's no, there's no entity called a mind uh, and I, I ran across this in like Ramana and the Sargadatta and a few people I read that, you know, the mind is dead and all this in the, in the Yani, the mind is dead and all this. And at first you hear that, I read that to a few people and they're like, oh, that sounds horrible. You know, the mind <laughs> is dead. And I, yeah, but the mind never exists. I think what they're saying is it's like the snake and the rope thing. It's like, okay, if you, if you got a snake, if you go into your garage, I have this in the book and it's, it's a, it's a classical Advaita like analogy, you know, I, I I certainly didn't make it up. I borrowed it from Ramana, but it's uh, and he borrowed it. Yeah, he borrowed it. It goes back thousands of years. Yeah, right? yeah, I think so. And um, it's just the idea that you know, and I I kind of try to make it contemporary. So you go in your garage and you see this coiled up snake at the corner, and you think, oh gosh, there's a big snake there. And then you you you, you jump back and you you hit the light that's on the wall, and you turn on the light, and you realize, oh, it's a rope. It's a rope I coiled up and put in the corner last September, and there it is. And, okay, so when you realize that the snake is not in the rope, that it's just a rope, well, did you kill the snake? Is the snake dead? Well, it's like, well, yeah, figuratively speaking, the snake is dead, but it's dead because it never was alive to begin with. Right. And I think that's what happens, like the ego death and the death of the mind and all this stuff that these really respected yani uh, realized teachers from India and so on they talk about and I think what they're really saying is you suddenly realize it never was to begin with it, it's not that it, it was really real and then it died it's the realization that it, it wasn't an entity to begin with incidentally uh, you have brought the blessings of 
uh, I don't know what, Jesus or something on Fairfield, Iowa, because it's raining outside right now for the first time in <laughs> I don't know how long. We've had oh, this good. severe Wonderful. drought. There's all these, oh, there's always these stories in the Vedas about how you know some country is experiencing a severe drought, and they, you know, they. Uh, implore some saint to come and visit them because they know that when he comes then it's going to rain so hey thanks i'm not saying i'm some kind of saint <laughs> but i really would like to visit fairfield iowa oh I that'd really, be great yeah. i find it fascinating that this i think it's fascinating fairfield iowa and i'd love to come and see what's going on there and yeah, I hope so you may, do. Maybe move there. I don't have anything keeping me here, that's oh, for sure. Oh, that'd be great. But aren't you <laughs> going to do some kind of prison ministry thing or something? Well, you know, I had several possibilities doing some chaplaincy jobs, and they've fallen through, so I don't have a job yet. So. Huh, okay. I, and I'm willing to go wherever I can to get a job, really. Yeah. That's my, that's my background and my formation and education, so on. So. And uh-huh. I, love, I love that work. I love that kind of ministry. Cool. I didn't want to get you off the track. I wanted to ask the question, since you're talking about the, you know, the rope and the snake and the mind never having existed really, um, would you say that for all faculties? Or is there something about the mind and the ego which is uh, more um, illusory than, say, the, the, the senses, you know, the sight, hearing, taste, touch, smell? Uh, aren't the mind and ego just kind of relative faculties that are necessary for our overall functioning? Or is there, is there really something less real about those than other no, faculties? No, I mean, I think they, they exist in the sense of the, it's a functioning. It's yeah. a kind of human functioning. It's a but mechanism I think of where we go wrong as human beings is we conceptually make it into an entity. Yeah. That's, that's the basic human dysfunction, in my opinion. It's this conceptualization of reality. And then we believe that the concepts we have about something are the reality. And we, we, we just we miss the bus. You know? We just don't get that, yeah, there's functioning here. There's seeing here, for example. Mm. There's tasting here. But there's no taster. There's no seer, really. Mm. There, that's, that's where I think that idea of subject and object you know, there's no seer and there's no seeing. There's just seeing. Yeah. There, 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 that, and that's really saying the seer and the seeing are one. It's not, they're not two different things. They're, you know, all there is is just the reality of seeing. Does that make sense? But there's, uh-huh. no, there's no subject. There's, there's no little guy in there that is <laughs> doing the seeing. There's it's just, funny, though. I think we yeah. think that. I mean, I think the, the sort of unenlightened human consciousness is we, we, we make up all these entities. We... we we, we, we make up all these conceptual things, and then we believe they're real. It's kind of like there's this story by, that Jack Cornfield, the Vipassan teacher, tells where he says his daughter drew this picture of a monster when she was like six or seven or something. Mm-hmm. And then she put it on her wall in her room, and she said, Daddy, I'm scared. And he said, Why are you scared, honey? And she said, I'm scared of the monster. And he said, What monster are you scared of? And she said, That monster. And he said, Honey, you drew that monster. <laughs> That's a great story. We, we laugh at that, but we do that. Yeah. We, we make these things up. Or, you know, another person's good at this is the Byron Katie work, mm-hmm. you know, where we, we make up these stories and we scare ourselves. We, 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 we have these concepts and we take them to be real. And they're not real at all. They're just concepts. Mm. Well, I they're guess real that, as concepts, but. That begs the question of who's making up the story. I'm not sure. They just huh. sort of come, don't they, these stories? Yeah. They come a lot less these days for me. But mm. I'm still capable of having a story come. But I, I, I kind of right away I see it's a story. It's like, 
oh, that's a good one. You know? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, if ultimately we are not the author of our actions and if there is some divine intelligence which is orchestrating this whole thing, yeah. then maybe that's the one who's made up the stories. Who Absolutely, it has to be. He's made this whole universe, entered into it, plays the game, and yeah. plays hide-and-seek with himself. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. That's absolutely accurate in my experience, mm -hmm. or at least my, my sense of things, I'd say. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. And for what purpose? Yeah, that's a big question. Expansion of happiness, maybe? I'm not sure. I don't know what the purpose is. I mean, you, you talk about happiness and bliss and, you know, and all that in your experience. Could that have ever been there if, there ha if one hadn't gone through this whole hide-and-seek game and come to a, a, you know, an embodied realization? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like that little analogy I have at the beginning of the fish looking for the ocean, you know? Right, right. I mean, the fish finally finds the ocean because he realizes, well, the ocean's all around me and in me, and I am the ocean, and he suddenly realizes that. But maybe he had to look everywhere to find it before he could realize that, you know? Mm -hmm. It's all good, as the kids say, you know? I don't, I don't, I don't judge it anymore. Like, I, I see people on a frantic search, and they're going through their life, and they're looking for happiness. And I think, well, that's perfect for them, you know. Maybe they need to do that for a time, you know, maybe several lifetimes. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe a thousand of them. Yeah. It's, it seems like an innate tendency or an innate, you know, it's the way we're wired. Oh, I think it is. You know? Be I think because we are happiness, we are happiness. That's who we are. Uh and we sort of realize that. We, we realize it before we realize it, really. We never don't realize that on one level. And so that's why people are always looking for happiness, because they got to have happiness. Mm -hmm. It's just hardwired into the, the consciousness that, of course, you have to have happiness. You are happiness. You know, they're looking in, in all these different places for it, and they're thinking they're going to find it in an object. And, and they won't, but not ultimately, anyway. Yeah, but, that, you had that great quote from Marilyn Monroe in your book, once you get what you want, you don't want it. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I heard a, it was funny because I was in the monastery, and I was a novice, actually, and this guy, this really famous uh, expert on St. Bernard, and he was an expert on patristics and so on. He's from Australia, and uh, he, was, uh, he was giving us a talk, and he said, I have a quote from a very obscure saint that most people don't appreciate, and uh, it's, but it's, this quote is extremely wise, and he says, the quote is, and I want you to try to guess who it is after I tell you, and he says, the quote is, once you get what you want, you don't want it. And everybody was throwing out, oh, I think that's St. Teresa of Avila, I think it's Teresa of Lisieux, I think it's, you know, this and that, Mother Teresa, or, you know, everybody's throwing out all these things. And he says, no, that was, that was uh, uh, spoken in 19... Uh, I don't know, 51 by the blessed and ever holy Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> and everybody was like, oh, okay. <laughs> but I never yeah. forgot that quote. You know, it just stuck. And, and, and then when I was writing that chapter on happiness, it just seemed to come out. And uh, there's a lot of wisdom in that, you know. Yeah. Uh, once you get what you want, you don't want it. But, you know, it seems to me that if, if your happiness isn't contingent upon the things you get, then you do appreciate the things you have. You oh, know? It's not like, because you weren't like hanging your hopes on getting, 
you know, a such and such. No. Uh, and like, if I, if I got a new bicycle, for instance, it's not like I, I look forward to that with great anticipation and, oh, it's going to be so wonderful. It's like, you know, if I get a new bicycle, great. I love this and, and I'll, I'll use it for years. And it's mm -hmm. uh, so you don't kind of have that addictive um, right. chasing. You're, you're not looking for ultimate happiness in that object. You realize what it is. You realize the limitations of it. And you enjoy it while it's there. It's yeah. like flowers, you know. We, we bring flowers to people. L women, you know, love to get flowers. My mom used to love to get flowers every birthday, every any excuse to get her flowers, and she would get into that. And uh, yet, you know, you don't expect a flower to hang around for 20 years, do you? Right. You, you, you know the limitations. You know, like, okay, this is beautiful. How beautiful you can just revel in the beauty of a flower. But you know in a couple days it's not going to be there, and then you throw it away. And that's fine. And I think everything is like that. Like everything in our life, we, we enjoy it while it's there. We don't deny, you know, that's the whole monastic thing in a way, like denying the world, denying yourself, denying. And, you know, I kind of like been there, done that. I got the T-shirt. I did, you know. <laughs> I, 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 and, and there's something to be said for, I'm not, I'm not knocking renunciation and all that. But it's very easy to get very attached to your renunciation. Mm. It's very easy to get some image of yourself as the one who who has denied himself, you know, the, the holy saint who has given up everything for oh, yeah. God. And it's like, well, then you're right back where you start again. The ego's snuck in through the back door, and now you've got a holy ego, which is much harder to get rid of than a worldly ego, mm. you know? And the whole point is that the ego, the self, the concept of me, it's just, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist as a holy one. It doesn't exist as a worldly one. It doesn't exist as a rich one. It doesn't exist as a miserable failure. It doesn't exist as a great success. It just doesn't, it's not there. But there must be some remnant of it, isn't there? I mean, if someone says, hey, Francis, you turn your head, you know, oh, yeah. you know who he's talking to. So there's some Absolutely. sense of, is, isn't there some sense of personal self? Totally, totally. Yeah. But I understand now what it is and what it isn't. Okay. It's Elaborate temporary. On that. It's temporary. Mm -hmm. It's a role I play. It's like that ex analogy I gave of a uh, Tevier and Fitter on the Roof. Mm -hmm. You know, I was in a lot of plays, like in high school and college, and I was very involved in that kind of stuff. And a lot of times you play a role, and if you're a good actor, you really get into it. You feel the role. You know, you become that while you're on stage in a certain sense. Mm -hmm. And I think our, the things we do in life or our identity, our relative identity in life, we are that on a relative level, but that's not who we are on an absolute level. You know, when I play Tevier in Fiddler on the Roof, when I go home at night or even when I'm on stage, I'm not going to be conflicted about my daughter marrying a Gentile. Right. Because I'm sane, right? I know, you know, I'm not really Tevier. I mean, I am Tevier in one way, but in another way, I'm not Tevier at all. Mm -hmm. And so you just play with that, like enjoy it. Okay, I'm Tevier, fun, you know? I get to sing, if I were a rich man, you know, whatever. I get to do all this stuff, but I don't have to let it bother me. Right. The story of Tevye is the story of Tevye. That's the way my life is now, too. The story of Francis is the story of Francis, and it's interesting, and I still have emotions that arise about it and feelings, and when you call my name, I turn my head, like you say. But on another level, I never, I never lose sight of the fact that that's not who I am. Yeah. You know, that's not who you are. That's not who anybody is. So, all, the world's, a, all the world's a stage. Yeah. <laughs>
Didn't Shake that's Shakespeare. That's Shakespeare. Yeah. I think it's I don't know, King Lear or something. All the world's a stage and each man in his time plays many parts. Yeah. He has, he has his entrances yeah. and his exits and so on. That's why this sort of like neo Advaita non dual fundamentalism stuff kind of gets me a little bit because it's kind of like if you were in a play and you got on stage and you were playing the part of Tevye, for example, and you get up on the stage and you and you look at the audience. You know how Tevye does that? He the the wall thing. He breaks down that and he talks to the audience uh, in Fiddler on the Roof. Well, it's says, been a long time. Since I only saw the movie and that was like forty well, years ago. But it's it's a little it's a little uh, technique that they use in theater a lot where the the character suddenly breaks the 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 sort of illusion of the of the play going on and he starts addressing the audience and Tevye would do this you know um, well should I let her do this or shouldn't I and yeah, yeah. maybe you know and he kind of like goes back on, and the, forth. on the other hand yeah on the other hand maybe she's right and blah 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 <laughs> well it's like these these totally like you know there's no one home there's no doer there's no it's like okay I get that I, I really do get it I get that there's no doer I get that there's no one here but on another level, there is someone here. There yeah. is a do. There is, you know, it's like, it's like if you were in, playing the role of Tevye and you got up on stage and you suddenly gave this big speech to the audience. You know what? I want you all to realize I'm not really Tevye, <laughs> and and these women are not really my daughters. That, in fact, that's my girlfriend over there. And 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 of course, she couldn't be my girlfriend, and my daughter at the same time. And you know. <laughs> This, and he got up, well, the, the director would be so pissed off at you. You'd be ruining the play, you know. And I kind of think sometimes when people get so stuck in this absolute view, like that's all there is. It's like, yeah, in a way that is all there is, but there is this relative world we live in, and most people live only in that world. Like most people don't even have any clue about this absolute level. And if we go around insisting that they don't, use personal pronouns and stuff like that it just to me it just seems funny sort of and it's like i don't think it really it i don't think it really points to this absolute reality i think it just it just makes people think you're weird you know if yeah. if you if you insist on all this non-dual language and because language let's face it language doesn't get it anyway language can only point poorly it doesn't it doesn't somehow capture this reality that we're 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 talking about today so why, who cares what, you know, Yeah. just use I, normal language. And I think it's a kind of a sort of an immature level of teaching that, and that many of them have actually evolved out of, you know, there are a number of people. Who oh, really? Of, yeah. There's a number of, some, some of whom I've actually spoken to, like Krishna Gauchi and some others who sort of tease themselves about how the way they used to be when they first came back from Lucknow and how they use this convoluted, you know, way of, not identifying that there's any individuality. I totally get that because I went through these four or five months of just not even hardly being able to speak. And so I understand the sense that this language just doesn't accurately point at all. And I understand that sense of things. You try to speak in alignment with that, but it... You try, but you, you know, you can't really. Right. How could you? You just can't. So, so language is, is limited, but it's what we have to communicate, at least so far. So yeah. might as well use it, you know? Yeah, but you know, your point is well taken. And as you know, it's been a, a kind of a theme um, in these interviews. And you sent me a, a long email about it that we, might, we could talk about at this point. Um, you know, well, the one point we've already sort of touched upon you know, that, that comes up, and since there's ultimately no, pers <coughs> no person present, 
who is left to do spiritual practices. And you mentioned right. that to you, it's it's like saying since there's no person present who is who's left to eat food, you know, <laughs> right. or, or breathe, or, right. or whatever. And uh, I guess maybe it, we could sum, summarize it as a con, kind of the confusion of levels fallacy. Yeah. Where, you know where you you know on some level fine there's no person. Right. Got, got it. Uh, but that doesn't um, obviate or, or you know uh, levels on which there is a practical utility to doing this, that, or the other thing. In fact, the realization of that drastically changes the way you move through the relative world. If you realize the absolute view, then the relative is then relative, right? Mm -hmm. It's not absolute anymore. So when bad things happen to you, for example, or death, or of a loved one or all these things. These are, these are things that happen to people. And believe me, I deal with this in my profession. I, I, I had to comfort people who had lost loved ones. I had to you know, be there for people and be present to people and try to bring some, some comfort and some peace to them. And so I, I'm not minimizing those things. Those are, those are things that impact people. But when you have a, this absolute view, then you see it for what it is. You, that doesn't mean that the normal human emotions don't arise. You can still grieve. You can still feel a sense of loss. All that stuff is, in fact, it's in some ways it's even more acute because you're you're more open. You're you know this opens you up so that nothing is threatening anymore because you are the spacious awareness in which everything arises and ceases. So whatever arises is welcome. It's not you know it's like okay that's arising. Well that's interesting you know. And I'm sure and, you're not saying to these people whom you're counseling, you know, oh, nobody dies. And no, no. There's no need for grief because no. yada, yada. No. <laughs> I've given a lot of spiritual platitudes. Because they're, at that moment, they're dealing with emotions that are arising, yes, arising in the absolute spaciousness, but they're dealing with something that is relative. So I have to be on their level to deal with them dealing with it, you know, like a dream thing. Like you say, you know, if you're in a, ti in, a, in, a, in a dream and a tiger's chasing you, you need a dream gun to shoot the tiger. Right. You know, a, a real gun won't, won't deal with a dream tiger. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work that way. Or a dream gun won't deal with a real tiger in your everyday life. Yeah. You know, so if I'm on a level with somebody and they're really in the relative world and they're dealing with something there, then I have to come down to that and well not come down that's not the right but you know what I mean I have to deal with them on that level yeah render and, unto Caesar what is Caesar's just d deal according to the level at which you right yeah at which the situation exists I, I love this sort of concept that Ken Wilber talks about he talks about these different phases of development in consciousness and so on but each phase includes the lower phase mm -hmm. like it doesn't negate the lower phase it just transcends it yeah. So, like, the, the, when you get the absolute view, you transcend the relative, but the relative's still there. Yeah, and you can, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Let's say you had, like, a 20-story building, and you, you keep going up a floor and looking out the window. Each mm -hmm. time you go up another floor, you have a wider vista, but that vista doesn't negate the lesser vista that you had from lower floors. It just includes it and extends it. Absolutely. Yeah, it's the same you know, idea, and it's it's just um, there's no problem with the relative. What it's the relative. It's fine. It's just not absolute. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. So if you could make a concluding report point on this whole thing in a nutshell, what would it be? 
this point we've just been covering. Or if you want, I'll make one. I think I would just point to that Heart Sutra. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. I think that says it all. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not, it, there's no problem with it. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Okay. Um, then, let's <laughs> see, there was more to your email here. Point two, there also seems to be, ah, this is a good one. There also seems to be the idea that the eternally present presence of awareness or consciousness means that we are all already awakened. Or many would probably prefer to say impersonal awakeness is simply present. So there's no need to do or become anything whatsoever. Um, And you say, well, I would concur on an absolute level. These are both true enough statements. The practical relative application that is being made with these statements uh, is not a very skillful means of applying these truths. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because I think that, um, well, and I think if you look at what is spiritual practice really, like if you boil it down, and the really good spiritual practices that seem to really work in people's lives, they what they are, they're, it's just a kind of resting in that awareness that's already present. It's a, it's a pointing to the ability to shift one's attention to rest in that awareness. It's never not present. It's always here and now. And um, all you need to do is, is realize it's like the fish looking for the ocean. You know, he's not, all he needs to do is relax and realize that the ocean's all around him and in him and he is the ocean. And yeah, but that I, can be easier said than done. Uh, yeah. Maybe, I don't know about the fish, but most, most people in the world are very caught up in the play. Yeah. You know, and... Um, That's why not, things like instructions about if a thought arises, let it go, and just come back to your simple sense of awareness. That's a kind of meditational instruction. And some people could say, well, you're doing, there's a doer there, and you know, who's doing that, and so on. But it's like, well, all it's doing is it's pointing to the ability that we all naturally, innately have to rest in beingness, mm-hmm. just to rest there. And there's no doing in being. Being is just being. And yeah. spiritual practice are just a way to point people to, to, to that ability that the, is innate within them to simply rest in their beingness. Mm-hmm. And I don't see any problem. I don't, I don't, there doesn't have to be a doer necessarily. A lot of times, yes, in the early phases of meditation and so on, there is definitely a sense of, I'm going to do this. I'm going to conquer this technique. I'm going to be the best meditator, you know, uh, that it ever was, and I, you know, and I went through that. I mean, we all go through that. But and if you're doing that, that, chances are you're going to be straining. Yeah, you're definitely you're going to be straining. And that strain isn't going to really be very fruit, fruitful in terms of. Maybe a fruitfulness of it is that you wear it out. Yeah. You wear, you wear out the straining, and you realize, well, that's not it. You know, <laughs> I strained and strained and strained, and all I do did was create a headache. Yeah. Exactly. You know? And then you realize, well, that must not be it. So then you lighten up a little bit and you don't strain as much and you just kind of rest in the awareness and then maybe, you know, I don't think anything's really uh, lost in the journey, you know. Everything we do, even the mistakes we make, we learn something from it. It it, it somehow uh, points us ultimately in the right direction in one way or another. Mm -hmm. So, Gita Gita says, "No, no effort is lost and no obstacle exists. Right, right. That says it really well. Yeah. It's funny, when I was interviewing Andrew Cohen a few weeks ago, um, he was talking about when he had been spending some time with Papaji, and he had kind of settled into this very 
profound, easy, you know, natural state. And then he went home that evening and, and tried to meditate, so to speak. And mm. he, he immediately got a splitting headache. <laughs> and uh, you know, couldn't my, do it anymore. My sense when I heard him say that, yeah, was that he had been in the habit of an effortful kind of practice, right. and, which which stuck out like a sore thumb in that easy, natural state that the presence of Papaji had evoked in him. Right, right. That's good, yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. There's a verse in the Vedas someplace, I don't know where from, that says, be easy to us with gentle effort. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. You know so many beautiful quotes. Oh, you know, I've got, I've got a limited little picnic basket. <laughs> uh, seems like a lot to me. Yeah. I'm not like somebody like Ken Wilbur or something who's a walking encyclopedia. Yeah. In fact, if you listen to enough of these interviews, you hear me using the same things over and over again. <laughs> I've listened to a number of them now. I've listened to probably, I would say, 20. Cool. Mm -hmm. Now, it's interesting with, with regard to this whole topic of practice. Um, you know, let's say a person is in a really agitated, you know, miserable state, very confused and, and uh, conflicted and unhappy and so on, and they begin a spiritual practice. Obviously, when they sit down to do it, they aren't going to sink into the kind of state that, you know, you experience in for two, several hours each morning. There's going to be a lot of turmoil going on. Um, right. Would you, as a, a teacher, have any kind of advice for them on how to, uh, you know, deal with that? Well, of course, you know, you have to deal with each person in reality that's right in front of you with an actual face on and so on. But so uh, there's no, like, I don't think a pat answer, but my kind of general sense of what I would do in a situation like that would be to give them like a mantra or something, to give them some kind of calming technique and just say, you know, just sit quietly and uh, just in a chair, if, it, if you know, however you're comfortable and just use this word. And when your mind starts to wander into all the turmoil and all your problems and so on, kind of let go of that for now and just, you can go back to that later. It'll still be there after your meditation, you know, after 20 minutes or so. But in the meantime, just rest in that word. Just breathe it in, breathe it out. Do, you know, because it's like, um, I, I, it's like the idea of when you take a course in Spanish, say, and you got Spanish 1, Spanish 2, Spanish 3. You know, you need to take Spanish 1 before you can take Spanish 2. And you need to take Spanish 2 before you can take Spanish 3. That's the best way to learn Spanish. And with this, like, I think that the essence of really spiritual practice that really goes deep is this idea of... Um, what's often called self-inquiry or, or I would call it self-abiding or self-investigation. And it's just this resting in the awareness, in the spacious awareness that's already present all the time. Mm. But in order to do that, it's better if the mind is a bit calm. It's not so agitated. You know, when the mind is agitated, you can't just automatically go to rest in that awareness that's already present because the mind is too, it's covering it over. You know, it's, it's like, obscured by all the activity in the mind and in the in the head so I would say get that quieted down a little and it's like TM they've done all kinds of scientific research about how this affects blood pressure and heart rate and it calms you and all this stuff you know that proves that physiologically even there's an effect from all this and I would say the best route for a person like that would be to get into some kind of calming practice like that and then eventually introduce the idea of resting and awareness. But first, do this as a preliminary kind of a level one thing. 
Does that make sense? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, that's the and, way um, I would I would uh, approach that. Yeah, and you know, and not to be discouraged, not to sort of feel like you're failing because your experience doesn't seem to match that of such and such a teacher that you've listened to who right. just seems so serene and settled and clear, you know, you, not to feel like you're doing something wrong, but to just realize that, you know, what is it they say, a journey of a thousand miles begins with one step and just... Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, another thing I might suggest to a person like that, and I have actually suggested this to people like that, is that one day it just came to me. I was talking to this woman, and she was very much in turmoil, and, I, and she said she was a failure. She kept saying, I'm just a big failure. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just the biggest failure. I, you know, I'm a spiritual failure. I've never been, had this, I've been at this stuff for years and years, and nothing's happened, and I'm just this big failure. And I said, yeah, but there's somebody in you, like she also said, I'm never aware, I can't be aware, you know. And I said, okay, but there's something in you, there's somebody there that's aware of the fact that you're not aware. There's something in you that's aware of the idea that you are a failure. So that's there, right? I mean, you know, there, that has to be there. So kind of try to just turn your attention to that. Just sort of shift your attention and be aware of that which is aware that you're not aware. <laughs> uh, and she got it. She, like, she was like, oh, yeah, I see what you mean. Mm -hmm. it, it has to be there, doesn't it? I said, yeah. So in that sense, even the most unspiritual stuff we experience that are arising, all of it points back to that spacious, absolutely open awareness, doesn't it? It can't help but do that because mm -hmm. that's what it's arising out of. Yeah. The turmoil in my thinking and all that, what's that arising in? It has no choice. It has to arise in the spacious awareness, right? Mm -hmm. So even that points, even that points. In that sense, everything that, that we experience, every experience in life points to this awareness which is beyond experience, which is the ground of all experience, you could say. Mm -hmm. It can't help but point to it. Great. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd say that, you know, the takeaway point from the discussion we've been having for the last 20 minutes or so is, um, you know, just because we understand ultimately that there is no person, that doesn't mean that spiritual practices are irrelevant or unnecessary. Uh, there may come a time when they are. Sure. Uh, but Sure, there, there is a yeah, time when they but, are, I But think. don't jump the gun, you know? No. No. It's like that old analogy that the Buddha used about crossing the river with a, with a boat. Mm -hmm. You cross the river with the boat, but when you're in the middle of the river, you don't discard the boat. Right. You keep the boat till you cross the river. Yeah. <laughs> then you leave the boat and you go and walk, mm -hmm. you know, to where you're going on land. You don't need the boat anymore. It'd be kind of a burden then to be holding onto the boat. Yes. But when you're in the middle of the river, I would not advise discarding your boat at that point in your journey. Right. You know? That's the point where the boat is kind of useful. And I think it's the same thing in the spiritual journey. It's, it, there's a time and a place for everything, as it says in Ecclesiastes. Mm -hmm. you know? And um, I think where people, you know, I don't know what it is, why people, I don't know. It's hard to say why, why, why you hear that so much. I mean, I, I, on one level, I can see where they're saying, well, it's already all here. So therefore, you don't need to do anything. And it's like, yeah, on, on one level, that's true. But on the other hand, as Tevye would say. <laughs> yeah. so. 
Well, personally, I think that the reason you hear it so much is that a lot of people who present themselves as teachers are primarily just, uh, they have an intellectual familiarity, possibly, and in many cases, probably supplemented with some genuine experience, but it just hasn't ripened to the point where it's completely comprehensive and mm. um, and incorporate, capable of incorporating all levels of uh, experience, such as to meet any person on their own level and, and teach uh, accordingly. Well, gee, I hope that's not true, because that, 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 you know, you can only take somebody as far as you've come. You, you, yeah. can't, you can't even point to anything further than what you've already seen. Right. So if you haven't seen much and you just have an intellectual con conceptual kind of notion of these things, then you can maybe help somebody get a good conceptual notion, but that's not going to be, well, it doesn't hurt, but I, I don't think it's going to be that helpful ultimately. Well, I guess the proof of the pudding would be, you know, how, how common are, are genuine and, and abiding realizations in the people who, who listen to these teachers. Uh, and I haven't done any kind of scientific survey by any means, but, um, huh. you know, that would be an interesting question to ask. You know, I was just talking. I, I actually hooked up uh, on the uh, Skype with uh, Trip Overholt. Uh -huh. I saw him on your show, and then um, he had actually referred somebody to me, and I kind of just got in contact with him and said, thank you for referring this person to me, and, they, you know, I think maybe I can be of some benefit to them. And, and uh, anyway, we ended up Skyping and talking, and he said he was at this, I, I, I won't say what, what it was, but it was like a big conference of, uh, of you know, uh, um, this kind of thing with, with teachers and things present. And this pretty well-known teacher was in the front giving a talk. And Tripp, and you know Tripp, I don't know, he seems pretty spontaneous. And, uh -huh. uh, and he just got up and he said, I turned to the room and I said, how many people here have had a personal direct scene of this spacious awareness that this guy is talking about? And he said there were like 120 people in the room, and he said maybe like four people raised their hands. Yeah. And I was kind of shocked by that. I was like, wow, okay, well, I, you know, I kind of thought that, see, in my, in my milieu, it, it's like there's not a lot of people that I ran across that had had even a glimpse of all this stuff. And uh, a few people I was working with sort of began to get glimpses, but... Um, I just didn't run across it, but like when I first heard about all this whole non-dual kind of uh, uh, scene with all these teachers and stuff, and I thought, well, I'll bet a lot of these people are waking up, a lot of these, and I think a lot of them are, but maybe not as many as, uh, as sometimes we think, I don't know. Yeah, well, that's an interesting anecdote, um, kind of points to what I was saying, Yeah. Um, which means that, which kind of, you know, these to the point that words don't suffice. It's not sufficient to listen to somebody talk about it or to read books about it or something. Something has to be done to make it a living experiential reality. Right. And I think little simple practices that point to this awareness that you already are, yes, but they point you to it so that you can have a direct realization of it yourself. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's useful. I think practices are... I'm all for spiritual practice. I think it, it really is. And I think... All the really great teachers like Ramana and people like that, they certainly encouraged people to do practices. Mm -hmm. And if it's good enough for Ramana, it's good enough for me, I would say. I, you yeah. know. Well, it's interesting. Some people might say, well, hey, in your case, you've already had this realization. It's permanent. Nothing seems to perturb it. Why do you bother sitting for two or three hours in the morning? I don't know. It's just fun. Uh-huh. <laughs>
I love to just I love to just be in that silence and fully just in that alone. You know, there's something I just there's something just sort of uh, spontaneously I find myself doing that. I, it's not like a practice. Mm-hmm. It's not like a it's not a program. You're just I'm, drawn to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, when I'm just going through my life, if I'm not engaged in something where I have to be doing some thought about it or there has to be some sort of a conceptual thing going on with it, that's kind of where I'm at. I just I'm resting in yeah, that. You're settled in that. Yeah. Yeah, and just enjoying it. And mm-hmm. why not? I, I would suspect <laughs> that not only is it intrinsically enjoyable or fulfilling, but there must be some effect it's having over time culturing something rather I would suspect so too yeah I I, you know I often thought when I was a Trappist because you're you're off in the country secluded in this place and you're not doing any kind of work in the world you're just praying and doing contemplative stuff and being a monk and I often wondered about that there was a guy in the in the refectory when I was a novice and he actually had had a very bad sort of mental breakdown early on I think in the 50s and uh, it was schizophrenic, paranoid schizophrenic, and he was a monk. And he was in the refect, or he was in the uh, infirmary. And uh, I used to clean his room all the time. And he never spoke, and he just sat in his room. But at night, you'd go by his room, and you'd hear him saying, chanting these prayers and things. And I used to, you know, and I, I used to think about that. And I'd, I'd, I'd you know, I'd, I'd go past this brother's room, and I'd hear him doing this little Latin chanting in there and stuff. And I'd it would often occur to me, and I, I, I just wonder, you know, I wonder what, what that's doing in the world. Maybe, maybe he's the one keeping the whole thing going. You know? <laughs> yeah. maybe, maybe he's the most important person in the whole face of the planet. Hmm. And, you know, our human sort of appraisal of that is, oh, he's useless. He's kind of living this useless life. He's this paranoid schizophrenic stuck away in a Trappist monastery somewhere. And what good is he doing, you know? And yet, you know... Maybe we don't. I, I'm. I, I'm not even. Not maybe. I'm pretty sure we don't see. We don't see the whole picture at all. Right. Maybe some yogi somewhere in the Himalayas is sitting in a cave, staring at the wall, and and he's the one keeping the whole thing running. You know. Who knows? You know, a lot of people have said that Yogananda and others that they're. You know, a lot of people squirreled away that you never see, but they're actually having a huge impact on the world. I suspect that's true. Mm-hmm. I really do. Yeah. Um, have a couple times during this interview you've become kind of emotional, which is great. Um, do you do you have you found since your awakening perhaps that there is a, a kind of a, a a deeper and deeper devotional quality developing? You know, I for many years since I was probably thirteen, fourteen years old, I had a very deep devotional quality to my spiritual life. And I loved Jesus. I loved, you know, I just had this really strong sense of devotion to Jesus. And uh, sorry about the table keeps shaking. I, there's now a dog under it, so he's shaking. It. Well, they're doing a lot of fracking in Ohio, and it's causing earthquakes. I've heard. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that's the, when you take off the top of the mountain, and no, that's when. Yeah, it's a whole thing where they're getting oh, anyway. nat- natural gas from deep in the ground, but they're sort of oh. really messing up uh, a lot of. Th- there's, a, there's a whole movie about it called Gasland, which you can see if you want to know about it. Oh yeah, I'll have to watch it. But um, now, what was I saying? Uh, we were talking about devotion, and you were very yeah. I really had a, a strong, man. strong devotional sense, um, and I have all my life really. And then once when this when this uh, discovery of this spacious awareness sort of hit me uh, for four or five months, 
I, I was immersed in love. <laughs> I was immersed in absolute love. So in that sense, I was in the devotion. But it didn't have any kind of personal um, characteristic to it. And then the interesting thing now is that I've come back to the point where I have a very personal devotion. And, it, and, and again, because of this integration of the relative and the absolute, I see absolutely no issue with that. It's like, yeah, it's just the absolute playing the game of duality. It's like if you love your wife, you know, well, in one sense, there is no wife. You know, her name is just a, a word. It does, you know, you can say all that. And yet there's this wonderful dance that goes on between lovers, isn't there? That they love each other. They enjoy each other. They, you know, they celebrate that. And there's something about that that's really very valid. And I think it's the same in the spiritual. You look at somebody like Ramana. He had all this devotion to Arunanshala. He, he, he circambulated this mountain. He talked about it as his father. He used all this imagery of, you know, uh, uh, that it was, sh it was uh, uh, um, Shiva and all this stuff, you know. And um, I think in all these really, really highly realized people, in Yanis, these people that really get it, they're totally, totally got it. And there's a sense that, like this relative absolute thing, there's no problem whatsoever between having this absolute view and really abiding and resting in that and being very devotional and being a bhakti person, you know? It's yeah. like, I don't see, there's no problem with it. In well, all the, all the great teachers of Advaita were that way. I mean, Shankara was very devotional, wrote all kinds of beautiful you yeah. know, devotional hymns and all. He, he was known to have said, uh, the intellect imagines duality for the sake of devotion. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you mentioned Ramana. And then the Sargadatta, he would do pujas every night. And, right. You know, Gayatri Mantra and all kinds of devotional practices. So, so the, an the answer to that is yes, I'm very devotional. Yeah. <laughs> In my so own I, way. I mean, I don't feel led to, I don't feel somehow compelled to share with everybody what my devotions are and to get them to accept my devotions. And, you know, my devotions are my devotions on that relative level. This, this body here, this mind here, you know, has certain devotions that appeal to me, yeah. and, and I do them, but you have to find your own way in that, you know. I was just curious as to whether your, your awakening or your realization had somehow fueled a more profound uh, quality of devotion than had been possible I would say before so. you really knew who you were. Yeah, I mean, I to, to put it in these terms, like if you don't know who you are, who's, who is it that's going to be devoted to whatever, you know, but, but it seems like self-realization could actually be the foundation for a much richer type of devotion or something. Well, it is because ultimately your devotion is directed toward the self that you are. Right. right? So how wonderful that is. I mean, for all these years, I was like seeking God, seeking God, seeking intimacy with God. And then I realized that it's all right here. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what happens to me when that, when I get a little emotional. It's like, the realization of that just becomes fully there, and it's overwhelming. I mean, the only the only way you can describe it is that you're you're just you're just adrift in this big sea of bliss and, and love, and and you realize that it's so intimate that it's who you actually are, mm. and there, there's something so intimate and so beautiful about that. You know, I did you ever read the Upanishads at all? I have a little bit. I have yeah. you know some Vedic stuff. I read the Bhagavad Gita. Mm -hmm. I've read um, some things in that tradition, yeah, and there's I love a, it. There's a whole section in the Brihadar, how do you pronounce it, 
Brihadaranyaka Upanishad, where it goes through a whole lot of things that people typically love. And it says, you know, it's, it is not for the sake of the self that the it's not for the sake of the wife that the wife is dear but for the sake of the self that the wife is dear it is not for the sake of the son that the son is dear but for the sake of the self that the son is dear and wow. it kind of tick, ticks off a whole checklist like that that's beautiful Drills you know what, what kind of great marriage counseling thing could that be your yeah. devotion to your spouse is your devotion to the, to the supreme self mm-hmm. you know that's like Mother Teresa's thing that she saw Christ in everyone mm. you know she was saying you know, that Jesus, that she had all this sense of devotion to and kind of a bhakti devotion to, was in the poor and the suffering that she, that she ministered yeah, to. Yeah, she would actually see Jesus as she was like washing Jesus' feet, curing Jesus' right. wounds or whatever, yeah. Right. That's yeah. my sense, too. When I, when I deal with people suffering, I, I see in them the suffering Christ or I see the divine in them, you know. It, it's, and it, sometimes it just absolutely melts. My heart melts. Mm. to people it just uh, that's sweet yeah it's very uh, it's such an honor to be able to engage people on that level at the, at the level of their pain and suffering to be present to just be presence for them mm. you don't even have to say anything you know it's just being presence and, and and that creates a space sometimes I've even seen that visibly people changing like on their deathbeds and you are just you're very aware that you're the spacious presence that's just that this death is arising in and you see this sort of peace come just descend on the room and it just you know it's beautiful mm-hmm. and it, it, it's really uh, it's drastically changed my ministry what, what, what I've been involved in ministry um, it's on a completely different level than it was that's neat I bet you people really get a different kind of effect from you than they used to well, yeah. people, yeah, people say that. Yeah, my own community. When it when this happened, they even though I didn't really talk about it in my community, and several of the brothers came to me and said, "What's going on with you? Like what? <laughs> you know, you're like, you're just." One brother said, "You're shining like the sun," <laughs> and I was like, "I." And then I just shined more. It was like, <laughs> yeah. Nice. I had people. I had one guy. He walked up to me, and I was waiting in a doctor's office. And this guy walked up to me and he goes, "What's with you?" And I was like, "What?" And he said, "What's going on with you? Like you just seem so happy." Uh-huh. And I said, "I didn't know what to say." It was at that point where I couldn't really speak, and I just said, "I don't know. I am happy." <laughs> I didn't know what to tell him. Very sweet. Yeah. Yeah. yeah kind of gives you an inkling of what the society might be like if this sort of thing were the norm rather than the exception. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, isn't that, that maybe is part of that whole evolutionary enlightenment thing that uh, Andrew Cohen was talking about. Mm-hmm. That I, I mean, I don't know a lot about that, and, and a lot of that seems a little over my head, sort of. I don't, I'm not the most bright person, I don't think, but he, he's, it, it seems a little complicated sort of on an intellectual level. But I, my sense of what I did get of what he was saying was that that's kind of what he's pointing to, that enlightenment is not, and it clearly isn't, a personal thing. There are no enlightened people, I mean, strictly speaking. We use that term to, to be able to talk about this, but, you know, I mean, on an on a absolute level, there's no enlightened person or unenlightened person. All right. In, in the book, I use this example. I, it just came to me. Was it's like talking about curly-haired unicorns and straight-haired unicorns. Mm-hmm. 
you know, enlightened and unenlightened people. Right. It, it, you know, it's like, well. Yeah, but you're speaking from the absolute view. On a relative, right. on a relative view, there are. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm not negating it at all. I'm not yeah. one of these absolutist fundamentalist people. Yeah. I'm just, I think that's clear, I would hope. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. But, um. Because, yeah. Right. Yeah. But both, I mean, when some of these people make these absolute statements, I can totally get where they're coming from. I mean, I totally understand very deeply that, yeah, on an absolute level, ultimately what you're saying is absolutely correct. But I think that we have to just recognize that we, we've got to move through this relative world. That seems to be the way it's set up, isn't it? Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's it's not like they're incorrect, as you say, but there's no practical utility to it. Yeah, uh, like it doesn't, yeah, there's nothing you can really apply it to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. Did you ever see the movie Zeitgeist? No. That'll be that'll kind of rock your world a little bit. I just watched it last week. It's very interesting. It, it go, the first part of the movie, they go into how there are at least a dozen traditions that they mention, which had basically the story of Jesus, but it wasn't Jesus. Like you know, born of a virgin. Yeah. W- went through this, that, and the other thing. You know, uh, you know, got crucified. Had twelve disciples. Yeah. Got, got crucified, r- rose from the dead after three days, and you know the the whole movie kind of calls into question whether there actually was a historical Jesus or whether it's just a rehashing of an ancient um, archetype that mm-hmm. has been going around the world in many cultures. So yeah. uh, the reason well, I mention it is just because I just saw that movie and I was wondering what uh, a religious person such as yourself would say to such a thing. Well, I mean, if you'd asked me that probably. 12 years ago or something, I might have said something different than I would today, but I, today I would say that, yeah, I mean, my insight about Jesus now is that all the things that, that the Christian religion has sort of said about Jesus, you know, if you look at just a simple creed, for example, it says, you know, I believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, this is a beautiful, beautiful phrase. The next, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. Through him, all things were made. You know, and what I saw after this happened was that's true of everybody. Mm-hmm. All those things we say about Jesus are who we really are. Mm. How beautiful is that? Yeah. God from God, light from light. It's beautiful. That's great. Yeah. Well, we could do a whole interview just about religious stuff. Uh, you know. Probably. You and, know, because my, my sense of the gospel and what, what religious things are has radically shifted, I'd have to say. Yeah. In fact, that would be an interesting thing for you to do is to write some books giving a sort of, a, you know, your take on traditional religious teachings and putting them in the light of Vedanta or, you know, non-dual. Swami Vivekananda, I believe, and also Yogananda tried to do that. They took, took certain scriptures yeah. and, and tried to comment on them on them in the light. I've read some of that stuff they wrote. It's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. In case you don't get a job, that keep you busy. <laughs> yeah, better get a job pretty soon. The money's going... <laughs> yeah, right. What money? There's no money. No, but on a relative level, on the other hand, (laughs) you need a job. (laughs) Yeah. So.
Great. I'm sure, I'm not worried about it. It'll all work out. It'll all come out in the wash, as they say. Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting on this point that I there's this one guy in particular. I know many stories like this where people have devoted their life to spiritual practice and spiritual stuff, and then they start getting old. Their health starts breaking down. They realize they have no money. Ramdas was a case in point. I mean, he kept giving everything away, and uh. then and then they like think, oh, you know, what am I going to do? They're kind of in trouble. So, it's kind of good to keep it all in balance. Yeah, I think you need to keep it all in balance, and you need to be just co have common sense. I mean, yeah, yeah. You no, know? like I say, the absolute does not negate that relative level. Like Ken Wilber has these stages. All the stages exist. Even when you go to the next stage. The lower stages don't cease to exist. They're still there. They just you just you just move through them differently. Mm. You see them differently. You know. Right. Well, moving toward a conclusion, do you have? Oh, any, okay. Well, we we can keep going, but um, uh, I don't care. <laughs> in fact, if there's things that you know are kind of in the back of your mind that we haven't discussed, feel feel free to bring them up. But um, one thing I was going to ask is, do you have any sense of? Where this might be going for you, uh, I mean, based upon the trajectory that you have seen in your life in the last three, four years, is there kind of any inkling of, you know, where you might be like three, four, or thirty or forty years from now, other than dead? If I go, up, yeah, if, I, if, I, if I go out that far, <laughs> I'm fifty-three now. So. Yeah, you could last no, another no forty, sweat. no sweat. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I'm pretty healthy. Yeah, but um. You know, I, I was I, I really am already functioning, I think, as a spiritual teacher, I guess. Mm -hmm. I don't have an identity as a spiritual teacher. I mean, that's not who I am at all, of course. But, you know, there seems to be that role there, and I, I seem to have something to say. Mm. Uh, I mean, at least people tell me that. Like, you know, people, I, I was giving a lot of spiritual direction as a monk, and a lot of people seem to be profoundly affected by that and, 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 and helped. And I love that. I, I, you know, that's what I've given my whole life to, and I, I love sharing this with people. I just, it, it, I have a passion for this, mm. and I think to do what your passion is makes sense to me. Um, I don't have a lot of concerns about the money part, but I'd like to be able to put bread on my table and, you know, yeah. do all that. So, uh, but what I'll be doing in three years, I mean, oof, who knows, you know. Mm. I, I'm open to how it unfolds, and I'm kind of just as curious as you are or anybody else, I suppose. But I, I don't really have a clear, clear sense of how it's going to all unfold. Right. I just I trust sort of that the people I need to meet, I'll meet. The people that need to hear me will hear me, <laughs> and they'll do what they do, and, and I'll do what I do, and it'll all just kind of flow together somehow. I, that maybe sounds very hippie-like or something, but yeah, kind of. <laughs> well, you know, there are a number of teachers these days who are pretty active, well-known teachers who didn't really have. Well, Eckhart Tolle is a case in point who didn't really have some kind of motivational scheme in mind. Uh, I, I mean, organizational scheme in mind that, that they were going to do what they ended up doing. But one thing led to the next. You know, he was sitting yeah. on a park bench, yeah. feed, feeding the pigeons, trying yeah. to get himself a little bit integrated. Someone yeah. would sit down next to him. They'd start talking. Next thing you knew, he was having little sessions with people. Right. You know, long story short, he's on the Oprah show. So, um, I'm not planning on being on Oprah anytime soon. Right. I, I think that that's sort of the way that kind of stuff happens if it's authentic, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. What I'm thinking is actually there might be somebody who's watching this, for instance, who who you know might have a little 
satsang thing or something in their vicinity where they have people come in and teach and they might like to send you a plane ticket and have you come out and you know cover your expenses and have you have you give a, a talk and uh, you know that might parlay into something else so yeah, if anybody's listening and and I, I, I suspect you'd be amenable to that um, sure <laughs> why not yeah get in touch with friends. I think you'd be a very um, entertaining and I don't, I don't mean that in a trivial sense uh, you know very kind of uh, interesting guy to sit and listen to and give a talk or a retreat or something well I, I actually in fact I have done a lot of that in my life I mean yeah. I've given retreats I've given talks I've preached I've done counseling with people I, all the things that spiritual teachers do I've spent half my life doing already but now so, there's a new dimension to it there's a new dimension to it and I don't know where my well, I don't know if I should say this on this public forum, but I, I don't really know where my relationship to the church and all that is going to go. I, you know, I, at the moment, I'm, I don't know. It, yeah. It's a mystery to me. I certainly, my, my theology has certainly shifted <laughs> quite a bit. So we'll see what happens with that. Good. Some people are concerned about that. I have very close friends that are wonderful, beautiful people who love me, and they're very, very in the church, and they're you know, concerned about me. I, I'm, I'm a little heretical, I suppose, in some ways, but... Yeah. I, personally, I think that independence of thought and uh, kind of an independent spirit is a characteristic of evolving spirituality. It's like, at a certain point, the, the chick no longer is quite at home in the incubator. It needs to kind of step out and start pecking around in the barnyard a bit. Well, you know, I'm sure that the universe or God or consciousness or whatever label you want to put on the, all this... It has some plan because I was definitely guided to leave the monastic life. I mean, it was just very clear to me that this is not the form for this person to be in anymore. Right. And um, and I don't know why. I didn't have a plan. It, was, it wasn't like, I, I don't want to do this, I want to do that. It wasn't like that. It was just clear that I needed to put myself in another situation, and I'm trusting that it will unfold, you know, as things go on and develop and... Yeah. We'll see what happens. Good. Yeah. Uh, it works that way, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that's the... You know, I don't make decisions. I know when I was thinking about leaving, and I I, I was uh, encouraged to go on a retreat, and I went on this retreat, and the person I was working with was an, what we call an Ignatian director. So they do this whole form that was, was developed by St. Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuit order, and it's a whole kind of a complicated um, sort of process of discernment and you reflect on scripture and you go through this kind of conceptual thinking about you know the good points of this decision like making the decision in your imagination and then living with the results of that and all this kind of stuff and I just like looked at this director and I was like this ain't gonna happen I mean I, I said I, I just don't make decisions anymore I, I life lives me and I, I let it live me and I, I know what to do when I need to but I don't know beforehand and I and I just I, I, you know, to do this would just be laughable. I, I can't even imagine doing a process like that. So he said, well, just be quiet this week and we'll see what arises. And I, what arose was that, yeah, you need to leave. It's time for you to leave. <laughs> and yeah. so I just went in and told him, he said, well, you seem at peace about it. I said, I'm totally at peace about it. And he said, well, what can I say? <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Good. Well, let's conclude. Um, so Marshy uh, once said, "You always feel like talking to an old monk." 
<laughs> is that what I am, an old monk? No, I was well. I dropped <laughs> dropped the adjective old, but um, <laughs> middle-aged monk. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but well, it, if we're concluding, I want to say something uh -huh. to you. Sure. I really, really appreciate your kindness in having me on here. Oh, and yeah. It's it's an opportunity for me to share, and that's what I love. I love to share this with people, and it's my passion in life. And I I just have so much. Uh, compassion for people and I, th this what we've been talking about is the key to happiness and, and, and love and all the things that people want in their life and I I hope somehow or other you know my life can um, can can be a vehicle for that for people so thank you well it is being and I'm sure it will continue to be more and more mm -hmm. yeah. so it's not a big kindness it's just I knew you would be a good guest and you know and <laughs> And I, you know, I really, uh, uh, you know, kind of jumped at the opportunity to have this conversation with you. So. Yeah, I don't even know how it started exactly. I uh, think you emailed me you and told that I liked your show. Yeah, yeah. I had no idea that you. I, I, I thought you only asked like famous teachers to come on your show at first. I didn't know. Cause well, I you know, I, I try to keep a balance. It's fun to talk to the famous teachers, but uh, I really want to uh, continue to talk to people that no one's ever heard of. Um, because, I mean, sometimes the famous ones are really good at talking, you know, and that's one of the reasons why you like to talk to them, because they have their act together in terms of articu right. articulating this. Right, right. Um, but that's not necessarily, it's not necessarily always that way. Uh, and, you know, some of my favorite interviews that I've done are with just regular people that, you know, ha don't have any kind of public role whatsoever. Yeah. The other thing I want to say is I want to be I want to express my gratefulness to Scott Killaby because mm -hmm. I, I got in contact with him through your show and he's been really such a help to me and helping me kind of come to a sense of understanding about all this stuff and I haven't had really even a lot of contact with him but it's just been very affirming and I I just think the world of him I think he's a great uh, teacher and and really has helped me. Yeah. No, Scott's great. Hope, uh, hopefully you'll be able to come out to the Science and Non-Duality Conference in October. I hope so. October. Scott will be there, and I'll be there, and all, all kinds of people, and yeah. get, to, get to meet some of these folks. Yeah, I hope but, I'll have money by then. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe somebody will listen to this and send you enough money to get to the conference. That'd be fantastic, yeah. Yeah. And me too. I've got a donate button on the <laughs> on BatGap.com. Oh, you're in so. the same boat I am. Okay. Yeah. No, people, people send in donations from time to time. It helps finance things like that. I'm surprised the Oprah Network or something hasn't like wanted to pick up your show because it's really fascinating. Oprah herself does something like this. She, she? Uh, you know, she sits down and talks to Llewellyn Von Lee and Deepak Chopra and various people and has these kinds of conversations. And, oh, but, but yeah. hey, Oprah Network, if you're listening, I'm available. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oprah can still do her thing and we'll have another show. <laughs> yeah, I know it. All right, good. So let me make a couple of concluding remarks. Um, I've had one guy who complains, why don't you just let your guests go? Why, don't you, why do you make them sit there while you make concluding remarks? And, and, and the reason is that if I let you go, then I've got to disconnect the connection, and it won't be recording anymore. So, oh, right, right. So, so I'm, fine. With, I'm yeah, fine to sit here. I'm, I'm sure you happy. are, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, for the benefit of those who've been listening or watching, um, you've been listening to... Uh, an interview on a show that we call Buddha at the Gas Pump, um, and it's 
an ongoing series. There's a new one each week. So if you're listening on YouTube, you can subscribe to this YouTube channel and you'll be notified by YouTube when a new one is posted. Uh, or you also may wish to go to batgap.com where they're all archived and where you'll also see a link to an audio podcast. Many people prefer to just listen to this in audio. And you also see a little discussion group there that crops up around each interview, um, which many times becomes quite lively. Um, I encourage people to try to keep the discussions somewhat, <laughs> so, somewhat relevant to the, each specific interview, and there's a general discussion tab for those who wish to just sort of talk about anything under the sun, but I'm not going to police it. I don't even have time to read them all, so you know, just have at it, have fun. Um, so that about covers it. Um, next week I'm going to be speaking to a gentleman named Howard Falco who had a very spontaneous and profound awakening and sounds like he's going to be an interesting guy. And the week after that, Anita Morjani, who's quite well known, who was at death door with cancer and full of tumors the size of lemons and had this near-death experience and woke up out of it and tumors went away and she had this profound awakening. So that'll be interesting. So in any case, oh, and one more thing is that if you'd like to be notified of all these things by email, if you there's a button on batgap.com, a tab where you click, and you can sign up for a newsletter, and you'll get an email about once a week each time a new one is posted. So thanks for listening or watching, and we'll see you or you'll hear from us next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs>